בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, we started a series last week of פרקי אבות, some מוסר, some very very necessary מוסר, and ברוך השם it's already having some very good feedback, so בעזרת השם we'll continue, we'll continue, and בעזרת השם this year we'll have, we'll go to a רפואה שלמה לשרה בת לבנה, לבנה בת שרה, and also to עילוי נשמת דן בן שרה. May Hashem have mercy on him, and בעזרת השם have mercy on all of us while we're still here. עובדיה בן שרה. רפואה שלמה? רפואה שלמה לעובדיה בן שרה. רפואה שלמה לדבורה בת מרצדס, דוד בן עשריה, דוריס בת ג'ורה. ליאור משה ישראל בן יעל בעזרת השם will have רפואה שלמה also and all of ישראל בעזרת השם will have רפואה שלמה רפואת הנפש רפואת הגוף so we find ourselves here in the second week of the year we have פרשת נוח an extraordinary פרשה where השם first he tells us where we came from Adam Arishon, the atheists have a very difficult time believing that the world started 5,777 years ago because it doesn't make sense to them scientifically when scientists that get hundreds of millions of dollars in grants are telling them otherwise. You know, are telling them, listen, the scientists are saying that the world was, uh, you know, only came uh, into being 13 and a half billion years ago. So how could you say 5,000? Doesn't make any sense. Now, some people try to explain it in a way where technically until Adam Rishon, there was no time. So for the first five days or so, there was no time. So therefore, maybe the first five days are an explanation of the 13 and a half billion years that science says. And then Adam Arishon started on the sixth day, and from that point on, it's 5,777 years. Now there's nothing really in the Torah to refute that, meaning that there's no one that says specifically that um, that can't be. But there's also no one that says that it can be. In my opinion, my humble opinion, um, there's a uh, no way that it is to be. Meaning that uh, there's um, a structure in the Torah that we learned about last week in the first series where we know that the uh, Torah came to us from Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, Mesara Leoshua, Moses got the Torah in Sinai. When God revealed Himself, and then He transmitted it to Joshua, and Joshua transmitted it to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great assembly. And what do we need to know all of this stuff for? To know that there is a source for everything. We got everything from somewhere. It started somewhere. And in order for us to exist with Hashem as our first priority, in order for us to fulfill our mission, we need to know where we came from, we need to know our heritage, we need to know where it all started, we can't just say, okay, you know what, we're starting everything from now. Just like, for example, 
The reason, one of the reasons why Goyim are not allowed to keep Shabbat like the Jews are allowed to keep Shabbat is because it's not that Hashem says, listen, uh, you're not good enough. If you want to keep Shabbat, fine. Convert to Judaism, you keep Shabbat. No problem. Everyone is welcome to be a Jew. You want to keep Shabbat, become a Jew. You're already Jew, you have to keep Shabbat. And same thing in with all the other mitzvot. But according to the Rambam, a, a non-Jew that keeps Shabbat, if he's not in the process of converting, chayav mitah, is death penalty, not allowed to keep Shabbat. It's a heavenly death penalty. So Rambam says, why is the non-Jew not allowed to keep Shabbat? What, Hashem hates him? No, he's also his creation. Why is he not allowed to keep Shabbat? He's not allowed to keep Shabbat because he's not allowed to create something new. He's not allowed to create a new religion. Meaning, Judaism is part is, has Shabbat as one of the foundational mitzvot. It's a core part of Judaism. It's a present that Hashem gave to Am Yisrael even before Mount Sinai. Hashem says to Moshe, I have a great treasure in my treasure chest and the name of it is Shabbat. Go tell the nation that I'm about to give her to them. This is an igma. Now if Hashem said to all of the nations, listen, all of you keep Shabbat, he would say, I have a great treasure to give everyone. But he didn't say that. So now, if someone keeps all of Judaism, then he's going according to the Torah. If, just, if someone just picks and chooses, says, okay, I want to keep Shabbat because I like the mitzvah. It's easy for me. I sleep, I eat, I pray. Who's better than you? It's vacation. Paid vacation because I get paid in all I'm about for it. But I don't want to wear tzitzit, and I don't want to do tefillin, and I don't want to have brit milah, and I don't want to be part of the Jewish nation. I just want to keep Shabbat. Not allowed. Why? Because now you've taken one part of the Jewish religion, and you took it to yourself, meaning you created a new religion. This is also one of the reasons of why the Muslims and the Christians have a serious problem, aside from the fact that Christianity is 100% idol worship. Muslim is not idol worship. Islam is not idol worship, but it's still a problem. Why? Because they have heresy. They changed the Torah. And aside from that, they also created a new religion. You're not allowed to create a new religion. So the point being here is that if someone understands this, they know that the lineage that we have, the history that we have, the track record that Hashem has in His Torah is very, very important. To bring me to my point... If Hashem said the world was created, point one, Adam is born, point two. Then that means that, okay, you may be right. Whoever says that time started when Adam was created may be right by saying, okay, time started with Adam. But Hashem didn't say that. Hashem said he created the heaven and the earth, day, end of day one. Next round of creation end of day two, next crown of creation, end of day three, the sun and the moon, end of day four, next round of creations, and so on and so forth, end of day one, two, three, four, five, and six. If there was the days were different for the first six days, then why do you call them a day? Why don't you say, time passed? Why don't you just say, I created all of this stuff, and then I created the seven days. If time was only created during the sixth day, 
or the seven day or the twenty four hour system was created during a seven day, or time was different, or whatever they want to say to try to rationalize it in order to make the Torah meet science, which is the opposite. It's science is catching up the Torah. Problem is that sometimes we become weak enough to try to appease the people and we try to show how the Torah is meeting their needs. In reality, it's supposed to be the opposite. So we see here that if Hashem wanted to make sure that we know that our lineage is very important, our history is very important, our structure is very important. What you say from ear to mouth, uh, from, uh, from uh, mouth to ear is important. That's how the oral Torah has traveled for the last 3,300 years. And even before that, from Avraham Avinu before. So, what we say, what we do, everything is very, very important. If it wasn't important, it wouldn't be included in the Torah. If time was different, if it was important for us to even know that the world was around for 13 and a half billion years, or three years, or whatever they want to say, Hashem would include it in the Torah. Now, in the Gemara, in Masechet Chagiga, page 12, it does say something to reference that something similar to the Big Bang. Where it says that before Hashem created the heaven and the earth, in essence, he, he was the only thing that was there. There was nothing but Hashem. There was only Hashem. And he had to minimize himself in order to make room for his other creations. And then it describes a little bit of the details of what happened to this creation, of how it started with a small dot that expanded which is in essence very similar to how they explain at least part of the Big Bang Theory of how the universe expands and continues to expand and so on. But the difference is, is that Hashem told it to stop, meaning stop expanding. And that's the difference between science and Torah, where Torah says that Hashem had the starting point, told it when to stop expanding, where a sign says it started expanding and it's never going to stop expanding. Meaning it's out of control or it is in control by itself. Where Hashem obviously is saying that he's the one that put it there, he's the one that controls it. So the point being here is that it's, there, are, there is a lot of science in the Torah. And one of the main things we've seen in the Torah and science lectures that we've had in the past is that despite the fact that science constantly calls out the Torah saying that it's wrong, the only one that's ever proven that the other side is wrong is the Torah proving that science is wrong and science finally catching up to the Torah. Science has never proven the Torah wrong. Not to this day, never before, never, you know, they could say it's wrong, but it's all based on theories. So my point being is, as far as time is concerned, the majority opinion is that obviously time started with Bereshit. There are some in this generation that say, uh, it could have it could have started with Adam Rishon, but there's no like um, major source that would say so. Either way, one of the ways that we could explain how there is certain things that are have a uh, are very dated. If you use carbon dating, if you use a uh, uranium or coal, all different types of dating systems that they have, you see that there are certain things that have a very old date next to them. Now, even though those dates are not precise, because if you give a dinosaur to one scientist, they'll tell you it's 30 million years old. You give it to another scientist, they'll tell you it's 35 million years old. Until you give it to another scientist, they'll give you it's 41 million years old. And this doesn't seem like a big deal. Ah, it's 30, 40 million years. What's the big difference? 
It's 10 million years. What do you mean? If we're saying that the world is only 5,777 years old, and your, your, your guesstimate is a 10 million year difference, or even if it's a 1 million year difference, it's a big difference. People just throw millions like it's like, you know, pocket change. Ah, it's 35 million. Ah, it's 50 million. Don't worry. I'll pay for it. It's on me. 50 million. Throw it in. We'll get a bigger grant. Now, if you say a billion, psh, get $500 million from the government. Okay, so, Ashrecha, it's a billion years. You get an extra reward for more years. More years, you get more grants. So, how do you explain that? First and foremost, we need to know that the dating systems are flawed. There's scientific proof that they're flawed. Uh, there is actually a, a movie uh, by a scientist, not a Jew, called The Fingerprint of Creation. If you don't like science, you'll fall asleep in five minutes. It's very, very boring. It's very dense. But if you do like science, you should watch it. It's an old movie from about almost 30 years ago. And until this day, no one has proven it wrong. Meaning that he showed scientific evidence that every single one of the, of the uh, dating systems is wrong. Absolutely wrong. So that's... I'm not going to go into the science of it. That's not what we're here for. But anyone that wants to know why the dating systems are wrong scientifically, watch the movie. It's about 30 minutes. Anyone that likes science, it's very entertaining. Anyone who doesn't, just take my word for it. Save yourself the time. Learn Torah for the next 30 minutes. That's point one. Point number two. Easier way to point. Anyone that took science class in high school in America knows that at some point you learn about the world you learn about the atmosphere, you learn that the world itself, the globe, has a certain temperature. And that temperature is changes over time. Not much, but it changes over time. The problem with all dating systems, all of them, not one is different from this, is all of them depend on the atmosphere remaining stagnant. Meaning, if the temperature balance, let's say just, uh, let's say the par, or, or let's just say the, uh, the value is supposed to be zero. If the, universe, the uh, globe changed temperature by one degree over the last hundred years, thousand years, a million years, whatever, they wanted, whatever number they want to throw, that means that the dating system is no longer valid. Now, one thing they have proven scientifically is that the temperature has changed, for sure. Which means that it cannot... The dating system cannot be used. So that's point number two. Torah-wise, which is the most interesting part, easiest way to explain how these things are dated is the fact that just like a sick person, before he was sick, he was healthy. If you saw me before my surgery in 2006, I was a perfectly healthy 26-year-old guy with millions and millions of dollars, everything was fine. My annoyance that I had once or twice a year, no one knew about it. You couldn't tell by looking at me. I was perfectly healthy, fit, played football in high school, lifted some weights. Everything was fantastic. November 18th, 2006, everything changed. And if you fast forward over the next several years, You'd see, when you see pictures of me, you'll see someone that went from being tan as a, as a normal complexion, like some of you, to someone that's completely white, like I just came out of Russia. Only difference is, my complexion was not because I came out of Russia, it was because I was very, very sick and about to die. 
So what, what, why is that? Because when you go through trauma, things change. The world, in this week's parashat Noach, went through trauma. Hashem destroyed everything. He took a couple of stars, as it says in the Gemara, and he moved them out of place. Meaning he took a couple of comets, a couple of comets that were all ice, he moved them out of place, and all the water came and flooded the earth from the top, plus the lava came out of the bottom, burned everything in sight, and flooded everything that was flying, burned everything from the bottom, melted everything, and as it says in the parasha, the Nephilim, which were giants that reached the sky, melted, and was their, 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 uh, their skin and their bones and everything had no record whatsoever. All of it melted and became liquid. The one thing that Hashem did leave is Hashem left one of the giants by the name of Og. Og, the king of Bashan. And the reason why he left them was, number one, in the future you would have a merit for reporting a uh, something to Avraham Avinu that uh, Lot was kidnapped. So that was one merit that he would have in the future. But the second reason, or the bigger reason, of why he left Og uh, alive, because technically you can't be paid for something you haven't done yet, but the main reason of why he left him is because Og was the smallest of all the giants. So anyone that would now, after Noah came, they reproduced, they brought people to the world, those people saw this giant, and he's telling them a story, listen, I was there, Hashem destroyed giants much bigger than me, I'm the smallest of all of them, so if he could destroy things that are bigger than me, then you get a little bit of an idea of who Hashem is, his power, the point being is that the world went through major trauma, Hashem destroyed the world. So when something goes into trauma, you can see how things could be, the dating could be different. A tree that was a, uh, or a ground, or sand, or anything that uh, went through this such a trauma, obviously is going to have major, major uh, um, signs. So that's, that's the uh, biblical explanation. Nonetheless, the, the last and most important point about the whole dating thing of how old the earth is, is it doesn't matter. If the world is 13 and a half billion years old, 30 billion years old, it was just born last week and you know this week is its birthday, it doesn't make a difference. You still have to keep Shabbat. You still have to do Brit Milah. You still have to keep kosher. You still have Tarat Mishpacha. You still have to be modest. Every, nothing changes. None of the mitzvot change because of how old the world is. So anyone that wants to use that as an excuse to not keep mitzvot, no, you guys are saying that the world's only 5,700 years old, already shows us a problem. It doesn't make a difference. Okay, it's 13 and a half billion years old. We agree with you. You're, you're, you're the genius. Fine. Stop to keep Shabbat. Nothing changes. This is the reason why the sages didn't spend much time on it. Because it doesn't really make a difference. And this is also the reason why the sages don't really talk about aliens. You know, from other planets. Doesn't, there's nothing in the Torah that talks about aliens. doesn't say that they exist. doesn't say that it doesn't exist. If they exist, if they don't exist, it doesn't make a difference. Why? Because it won't affect our life. Could they exist? Sure. I mean, it says in the holy books, 
that Hashem did create other worlds. There were six other worlds before this world. He created them, he destroyed them, he created them and destroyed them. This is the last world. There's also, it says in the holy books, that there's different creatures in the world. There's little midgets that, you know, you don't see. There's uh, not the ones that are just people that are short and sick. Like, I mean, like little creatures that are like, small. Like, I think I told you guys in one of the years that Sonny wants to catch one of them. Sonny asked me how he could catch one of them. There is also ghosts. There is demons. There's all types of wonderful things that we don't see. They exist. Um... It even says that Shlomo Melech went and went to this other part of the world and brought one of these beings that had three heads and someone that was small. It's in the Torah. Do we know everything about them? Do we know what language they speak, what they like, what their favorite uh, team is in baseball? No, because it doesn't make a difference. Only thing that's in the Torah are the things that are going to make a difference in your life. Just like it says in the Gemara Masechet Megillah, as we've talked about in the past, the reason why only 55 prophets are mentioned in the Tanakh and not the over 1.2 million that we've had throughout history is not because the 1.2 million prophets that we had throughout history are not important. They're very important. They're Hashem's creations. They were prophets, obviously, they're important. But they weren't mentioned because their prophecy was only relevant to their time. It wasn't, which means that the 55 that are mentioned in the Tanakh, the five books of Moses and the 19 other books after it, every word, every letter, every sentence, everything that they say is eternal. Meaning it's relevant to their generation, to the generation after, to the 10 generations after, all the way to you and me today. Everything that's written in this book is relevant forever. Even the mitzvot that you can't do. Like, for example, there's mitzvot that uh, they, you know, we can't do like things that we, uh, for the Bet HaMikdash. It's still relevant to you. Why? Two reasons. Number one, the Bet HaMikdash will be built one day, Bezat Hashem. At that moment, the Bet HaMikdash is built. That mitzvah becomes relevant. Point number two, as it says in the book of Hosea, the prophet says that our, our prayers are uh, replaced, our kobanot. Every time you pray, it's instead of giving a korban. It's instead of doing a sacrifice. This is uh, chapter 14, verse 14 of the book of Hosea. So, we see here that Hashem created the world in a certain way, in a certain order, and as we learned in last week's shiul, He wants to make sure that we know where the starting point was, that the Torah was not something that we found in some cave, Torah was received by someone named Moses in front of millions and millions and millions of witnesses. It's not some book that just appeared out of some uh, mystical event. Millions of people saw this happen. This is the only religion that ever started in front of millions of people. As Hashem says in His Torah, no other religion will ever start like Judaism did. Meaning, no one will ever say that me, him, and my buddy, or two people even, spoke to God. One person can say whatever he wants. But no two people will ever say we spoke to God at the same time. What's the significance of this? 
Hashem doesn't, is showing you that number one, Am Yisrael is very special. They're the only ones that not only did he speak to two people, he spoke to millions all at once. And it's a one-time event. That's number one. Number two, it shows that whoever says that they spoke to God, whether it's Muhammad, the prophet for the uh, Muslims, or it's uh, J.C. Penny for the uh, for the Christians, or it's some other cult of religion for some other, you know, Buddha or something. You could see, you look at their religion, they say, oh, only one guy. So you see that Hashem's Torah came true here. You see that no religion was started by more than one person. The significance of this is that it shows you that the one who wrote this book also has control over nature. Because technically, anyone that wants to prove the Torah wrong can just say, make up a lie. Take him, take five of his friends, they'll say, they'll make a big uh, conspiracy, say, listen, all of us come out of the woods, make sure that the media is waiting for us, and tell them, ah, all of us just spoke to God. That's it, there's a mistake in the Torah. If more than one person says he spoke to God, there's a mistake in the Torah. And that can never be. So something that is technically easy to do, you get five people to shlai, Shem says even that's not going to happen. Even that's not going to happen. So it shows that whoever wrote the book, obviously... He's telling you, listen, I want to make sure that people believe this book and follow it, because in order for them to follow it, they have to believe it. So I can't put anything in it that's easy or even possible to disprove. This is a point that you could disprove tomorrow. Five people watch this show, they want to, they're mental cases, they want to tell the world that they're, uh, you know, they, they want to start a new religion. Okay, they watch five people watch the show, they all start a whole conspiracy, make sure that the media is watching. You know, today everybody's a cameraman now with their phones. So, five people say, okay, we all spoke to God. That's it, you have a mistake in the Torah. Why don't I say chas v'shalom? Because it can never happen. Why? Because the one that runs the world is the same one that wrote the book. He says it's never going to happen, I take his word for it. Just like he says, the world started at a certain point, end of day one, end of day two, end of day three, end of day four. That's it, take his word for it. And that's the main um, character trait that we can learn from Noach. In Parashat Noach, it starts with Ele Toldot Noach, Noach Ish Tzadik Tamim, Ayah Bedorotav. Noach was a righteous man, perfect in his generation. But Tamim doesn't just mean perfect in his generation. The literal translation means he was complete. Complete with Hashem. Whatever Hashem says, that's what he does. No second guessing, no, Hashem, can you give me a proof? Can you, can you show me something? Can you show me like some miracle or something that I know that you're there? It doesn't say that he had miracles. He didn't have Mount Sinai. He didn't have the uh, ten plagues. He didn't have any cloud following him. Needless to say, seven clouds. He didn't have man coming from Shemaim. No proofs. But it doesn't say that uh, Noah had safik, that he was doubting, Hashem, are you real? Maybe I'm just going crazy. Maybe the plant that I ate for lunch had some LSD in it or something. Who knows? 
He didn't say, he doesn't say that. Why? Tamim. He was, Hashem says this, that's what I do. No questions asked. This is one of the best tributes that you could actually, a character trait you could have for yourself. It's good to ask questions. It's encouraged to ask questions in Judaism. But make sure that every one of your questions has a purpose. Don't be one of these people that just ask questions just for the sake of knowing that there is an answer. Like sometimes people, people, Baruch Hashem, send me hundreds and hundreds of emails and text messages every day. The bigger the uh, channel grows, more fans, the website grows, Baruch Hashem, people from America to Australia to Tahiti to India, Africa, all over the world are watching the Shiurim. So far I know of six continents that are watching people, people are watching the Shiurim. And Baruch Hashem, they send questions, they send messages, they have all these interesting questions. And a lot of them are very good questions. Some of them are very sensitive questions like, should we have kids? Should I have an abortion? Should I get married? Should I get divorced? Should I tell my husband I cheated on him? Should I tell my wife that I cheated on her? Should I convert? All types of should, should, should. All very, very important questions. Once in a while you get a stupid question. And not because the question itself is stupid. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Everybody has a question that's interesting to them. The reason why I call it a stupid question is because it has no purpose. Like there's no, like if I give you the information, let's say it doesn't matter whether I know the answer or not, I could get the answer. That doesn't make it stupid or make it a good question. If I know the answer or doesn't know the answer, it doesn't make a difference. What makes it stupid is that sometimes people want to ask a question for no reason whatsoever. There's absolutely no purpose for this question. They just want to know that there is an answer. And that is a waste of time. And that is someone that's not looking for an answer, but instead is looking for an excuse. And if someone is looking for excuses of not to believe, you're already looking for excuses, I can give you excuses not to follow Judaism from Judaism. From Judaism. You want excuses? I can help you get excuses. No problem. You want to gain home? Enjoy. I can give you a way, first way to get confused, completely confused. Read the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed. Read that book. If you're not confused, then you might be an angel. It's impossible. To Chazal said it's impossible. Sages, people burned the book because they thought there's something wrong with this book. It's not, it's genius, it's pure genius. But he gives you certain questions in the book. There's no answer to them. Not to us, not to our generation, not to his generation even. Not to anyone other than Moshe Rabbeinu even. And even Moshe Rabbeinu perhaps it was, didn't even have an answer. There's certain things, there's no answer to them. You're only going to know when the Mashiach comes. So you want excuses? Go read that book. You'll have plenty of excuses not to follow religion. Enjoy. But no, there's a risk here. If you're wrong, if there's a 1% chance that you're wrong, and the Torah is 100% true, your excuse is not going to help you. You show up to Shemaim and tell you, how come you didn't keep Shabbat? Ah, I had uh, doubts. What did you have doubts about? I had doubts if God was real or not. Yeah, so you think that the world just came into being by itself? No, I knew something had to be there. Okay, so why don't you follow that something? So I wasn't sure if it was Christianity or Islam or... Okay, but did you see many, many proofs in Christianity that it's fake? 
did you check out Christianity? Yeah, yeah, I saw Christianity. You see that every page in New Testament has a mistake in it? Yes, I saw. So you still followed it? No, no, I, I left it. Okay, so that crosses the first one. Islam, you saw that there's a mistake. There's over 9,000 copies of it. 9,000 different copies. 9,000 different versions of it. You see that the Quran has over 9,000 versions. Which one was right? Oh, I don't know. I didn't check all of them. Did you? Why? Did you find any mistakes? Yeah, I found mistakes. Okay, so you didn't follow that one. Okay, fine. Judaism, did you find any mistakes? No, I didn't find any mistakes. So what did you find? I just didn't have answers. Okay, so you didn't have answers. That's why you didn't keep Shabbat. That's why you didn't keep kosher. That's why you didn't follow anything. You just defaulted to nothing. You didn't do that with your business. You didn't know what you're going to do in the future. You didn't know whether you're going to succeed or not, but you still started a business with nothing. How many major businesses started with nothing? All of them started in a garage with a dream. $500 in a dream. Or $1 in a dream. Whether it was Apple or Facebook or Microsoft. All of them. All of them started with nothing. The greater the business, the smaller it started usually. Usually the ones that start really big don't end up very well. Google. Do you know that Google came to Microsoft, Yahoo, and I believe one other company and asked them to invest $10 million to buy the company. Nothing. Peanuts. Buy the whole company. Said, no, this is maybe 1999, 2000. This is right after the dot-com crash. Microsoft and Yahoo, oh, and America Online. Microsoft, America Online, and Yahoo all said, no, we don't believe any, you know, there's a future for search engines. We don't believe there's a future for search engines. We're not going to waste our money on it. Okay, you fast forward 16 years. Google is bigger than all three of them combined. But Google started with nothing. Nothing. Well, you think those guys had a, uh, said, oh, listen, we're not sure if we're going to succeed, so therefore we're not going to start? What about your health? doesn't say a guarantee on a medicine bottle, guaranteed to work. No medicine in the world says that. All it says is disclosure. This may kill you. This may cause you diarrhea. This may cause you to go blind. This may cause you to have headaches forever. This may cause you to go get divorced. This may, but it's just for headaches, for heaven's sake. Gives you all the disclosures of all the possible downside. What's going to happen? But you take it anyway. Why? Right, take a risk. What are you going to do? I can't deal with the headache. So for the medicine, you took it. You took the chance. For the company, you took the chance. For the marriage, you took the chance. You don't know if she's going to be honest. You don't know if he's going to be honest. You took a chance. For your eternity, you can't take a chance on God? What do you lose by being Jewish? What do you lose by keeping mitzvot? You have one day a week vacation. You have about one month a year vacation, or a little more than a month a year vacation, aside from Shabbat. You get to celebrate. You get to keep some mitzvot. get to hang out with the family. Some friends. You go pray. You talk to a creator. You give yourself some hope. You give yourself some purpose in life so you don't think that you go and end up becoming a sand or a tree after you die. What's the downside? You learn some books that give you some chokhmah, give you some intellect. 
So you're, not, you're a little bit different than a donkey that doesn't know anything. What's, what's the downside? So that's the thing. No one can show up to Shemayim and say, listen, I wasn't sure if the world was 5,000 years old or 13 and a half billion years old, so therefore I didn't keep anything. That, my friends, is an excuse. And here we learn from where? We learn from Noah. The same parasha that tells us what happened to make this confusion happen in the first place. The same parasha that tells us how you can avoid this confusion. Avoid it by being tamim. Avoid it by being tamim. Now, in the... Actually, you had a question before I start my next point. You had a quote. Both of you had a question. actually proved in one of his lectures that the world couldn't be more than the time, the 5,777 years, to the salt in the ocean and the sun. Can, can. Same, same, same scientific he, system. He sure. Proved this... But this actually makes sense because it's accurate that the world is only the time of There's time. many scientists that have come to their senses and realized that there's no way that the world can be billions years of years old. But again, the thing is, though, is that it's not an acceptable answer worldwide. There's still plenty of people that believe the world is much, much older than 5,776 years old uh, or 77 years old. But again, like I said, it doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. What was your question? After? Slide, you can ask questions. Okay. Same price. Same price. So, anybody else? Any questions? Next point? Okay. So, Nigmara, Masechet Bava Metziah, page 49a, says, Mishepara me'anshe dora mabul, u'me'anshe dora plaga, u'atid li'ifareh, Translation Gemara as we know is the critical part of the oral Torah The Mishnah which is what we're reading here which is the uh, came before the Gemara The Gemara explains the Mishnah so The Gemara says whoever paid the punishment to the generation of the flood generation of Noah and the generation of the Tower of Babel which is at the end of Parashat Noah the end of Parashat Noah a lot of people miss this part is what happened at the Tower of Babel chapter 11 of Parashat Noah Bereshit chapter 11 this is after Noah and his family survived the Mabul They reproduced, more people came to the world, fast forward a little over 300 years, and you have a bunch of people that say, okay, listen, in the year 1600, Hashem destroyed the world. So, maybe He's going to destroy the world every 1600 years. So instead of us waiting 1,600 years to see what happens, let's just go build a, build a building, get to the heavens, get to the sky, kill Hashem, so we don't have to worry about it. Now this obviously sounds ridiculous, but they actually, this is what they, exactly what they did. Everyone thinks that the uh, building in Dubai is the tallest building ever. No, it wasn't. Tower of Babel was much taller. Much, much taller. 
What do you mean they have foundation? No and building. They, no, there's no such thing as a building without foundation. Uh, back then, they didn't have the tools to do all this. Why the tools? The tools were created today. No, tools were created. Steel was already around from the time of uh, Cain and Abel. Says who was the first? Uh, the first one to have steel. All the tools were there. Okay, yeah, we didn't have the technology that we have today with the uh, um, certain technology, certain electricity that we have today, but they had plenty of brains and we could see that there's certain structures from the past that even today with all the technology that we have, we can't build. Example, the pyramids. We can't build the pyramids right now if we want to. Can't. Another example, look at some of the old buildings in New York. Look at some of the old buildings in uh, Paris or different parts of France or in England. Get the best construction company in the world, they can't build the same thing. Kote the Maravi, you can't. You look at all. You look at the Bet Hamikdash. There's no, uh, there's no cement. Each rock is not connected to another rock. Each rock is directly just on, is laying on top of the other rock with nothing connecting them. Nothing, no glue, nothing. No, you're not allowed. You weren't allowed to put any glue. You weren't allowed to put any any adhesive to connect the rocks. You also were not allowed to use steel in the Bet Hamikdash. Meaning they had to cut those stones. With no with no steel, how you go find go find something to cut this stone with no steel? How did they do it with a shamir worm? Like he said, the shamir worm that was a, 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 which is a species that doesn't exist anymore. That radiation came out of it, and they were able to cut the stones in a precise way. This is also how they made the choshen for the coin uh, gadol. So yes, the technology of today didn't exist back then, but we had different technology. Some of it was actually much more advanced. There's plenty of places in the Gemara, as we talked about in the uh, Torah and science, and I think in other lectures, there's plenty of proofs in the Gemara that there are certain parts of technology that we had back then, or medicine that we had back then, that's actually better than today. Like, for example, my dear friend, Meir Azulai, may Hashem give him refuah lema, Meir ben Rabbi Avram, a tzaddik mekubal, may Hashem give him refuah shlema, refuah tanefesh, refuah taguf, Mayor, about a uh, year ago, um, God bless him, he's been going through tikkun after tikkun, but Baruch Hashem, the tzaddik, takes everything with love. A little over a year ago, his uh, eye broke, pretty much. His retina popped, and he had to have surgery to put his eye together again. Um, and... Uh, Till this day, he doesn't see 100% like he did before this thing happened. No, it just happened. It didn't, nothing hurt it. Nothing, no one punched him. Nothing touched it. Just one day, it happened. Now, plenty of people have problems with their vision. And they go on hand to get either LASIK surgery, like I did 15 years ago. Uh, to, which is a laser surgery to improve your vision. Or you wear glasses. Um, you, the option of staying without one or the other is really not uh, good for most people because you, aside from not being able to see, it also gives you headaches. When you can't see and you stress your uh, stress your arm, your eyes, uh, you get headaches. I used to get migraine headaches. But anyway, in today's world, if you want to fix your eyes, you have to go to a surgery. And even though it takes only a few minutes. It's a, um, still, it's a process. But in the Gemara, there's a story of one of the tzaddikim had a problem with his eyes. He went to one of the other chachamim. He said, okay, no problem. Just put this cream on top 
of your eyes. He says, no, 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 I don't, I'm scared to put it on top of my eyes. Maybe I'll go blind, maybe worse. He goes, okay, okay, fine. Put it on top of something else, then put that on top of your eyes. No, 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 I'm scared, I'm scared. Long story short, at the end of the different processes that he told him, he goes, okay, fine. Put this in the back of your head. It's not even connecting here, in the back of your head, over here, put it over here. Just rub a little bit on the back of your head. A little cream. Lotion. Buy from CVS. Five ninety nine. Put it. It was free because it's Sadiqim. He put it. Woke up the next day. Twenty twenty vision. If somebody had that today, Bill Gates would work for him. He'd be so rich. You understand? So there's certain things in technology that's much more advanced back then. But needless to say, there's a uh, the Tower of Babel was definitely a monstrosity. It was a huge building. They tried building it with a warped mentality that they were going to fight God. Now, the question is, why didn't God destroy them? Like He did the generation that was 350 years earlier. Like Noah. He destroyed all of them. Why didn't He destroy these people? They're worse. At least the other ones, they were stealing from each other. They weren't going directly against Hashem. Ah, The one thing that kept the generation of the Tower of Babel to not be destroyed by Hashem was the fact that they had unity. So now... The Mishnah says, whoever paid punishment to the generation of the flood and the generation of the Tower of Babel, eventually Hashem destroyed them. The way he destroyed the Tower of Babel is that he changed the languages. He created the seven, until that point there was only Svata Kodesh, there was only the holy language that he created the world with, only Hebrew. But at that point he said, okay, you know what, I'm going to create 70 languages, so each person is going to talk to the other person, they're not going to understand each other. When they can't understand each other, there's no more unity. Once there's no more unity, they're going to destroy each other. And that's exactly what happened. So Shem is telling us here, just like he paid punishment to the generation of, of, of Noah, just like he paid punishment to the generation of the Tower of Babel, he will pay punishment to the one who doesn't stand by his word. What does it mean, one who doesn't stand by his word? If you say the one who doesn't keep Shabbat, the one that goes in, uh, with a married woman, that's not his, the one who wastes seed, the one, plenty of seed, plenty of sins. He's not saying that. Here he's saying he's going to pay the same punishment to the one who doesn't keep his word. It's a big deal. We should know what it means, right? So Shem says, just like you learned in the first Mishnah that my word is very, very important. I made sure that you know where everything came from. I started the Torah Bereshit to show you that I started the world. And the first book of the five books of Moses 
There's no Torah yet. We didn't get the Torah yet. We only got it in the second book, in the book of Exodus. Shmot. But I told you that whole history to show you where everything came from. And despite having many, many reasons to destroy the world, after Noach, because people continued sinning. These people build a building to go fight Hashem. Nimrod was named Nimrod in the generation of Avraham Avinu because Umarad Hashem. He specifically, his mission in life was to go against Hashem. That was his purpose in life. Nothing else. His whole job was to go against Hashem. Like some of these idiots today that make websites against God or against rabbis. Their whole purpose in life is to go against Judaism. Go against religion in general sometimes. I had plenty of reasons to destroy the world. But I made a deal. I made a deal with Noah that I'm not going to destroy the world. And the sign for that is my creation of the rainbow. So I had plenty of reasons to destroy the world. The generation of Noah, after Noah, I didn't do it. Tower of Babel, I had plenty of reason to destroy them. But I didn't destroy them. Why? Because I kept my word. I kept my word from almost 5,000 years ago. So that's one small attribute that you can't emulate me. I'm keeping my word for 5,000 years. You can't keep your word between each other. You tell the guy, listen, we made a deal. I'm going to sell you the house. You sign the contract. A day after you sign a contract, you go back to the guy, no, no, I don't want to do it anymore. Why not? No, I got somebody who give me a better price. Okay, but you already signed the deal. Okay, sue me. Sue me. Okay, by the time you finish suing me, you're going to spend more money than the house is worth. Same thing, somebody wants to sell a company. They made a deal, got to an agreement, signed the deal. Not like, uh, yeah, yeah, I want it, I'm interested. Like they actually signed a deal. There's actually witnesses, there's a, actually signed a deal. The guy goes back on his word. No good. Hashem says, just like I punished those, those people in the generation of the flood, the generation of Tower of Babel, I'm going to punish you. Because you have to keep your word. Why? Because your word is very, very important. Very, very important. So, how is this connected to our Pirkei Avot series? As we see that the Mishnah, the second Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, is a continuation. We finished last week with saying how Moshe got the Torah and he gave it to Joshua and to the elders and to the prophets and then eventually they got to the Anshei Knesset the men of the Great Assembly, a group of 120 of the Gdolei Adol, some of which were actual prophets. Now here the second Mishnah says, Shimon HaTzadik, Aya Mishayre Knesset HaGdola, Shimon the Righteous, was one of the remnants of the Great Assembly, he was one of the last ones, he was the last one, of the men of the Great Assembly. He was accustomed to say, 
על התורה ועל העבודה ועל גמילות חסדים. The world is based on three things, on the Torah, on the service of God, and upon the acts of loving kindness. So here, we have someone, right off the bat, it's showing us that this is not some Shimon that's from the flea market. This is not some guy. This is showing us direct connection to Moshe Rabbeinu. We know exactly who gave him what he knows, All the way from Moshe Rabbeinu is actually a list, if you guys want to show you after the shiur, exactly of how the Torah was transmitted from Moshe Rabbeinu, from prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet, all the way to Shimon HaSadik, all the way to Rabbi Akiva, all the way to today. See exactly how the Torah was transmitted, no gaps like the Goim or the Kofrim would say. There's no gaps. You can see exactly how the Torah was transmitted, both the written and the oral Torah, all the way from 3,300 years ago. So no one can have a doubt. Hey, listen. There was a gap like in Christianity. There's a problem in that religion. Well, a lot of people don't know. The characters in the book didn't write the book. As a matter of fact, the characters inside the New Testament weren't even alive. For 70 to 300 years... Before that book was written, meaning that no one that's inside that book, that's a character in that book, whether it's J.C. Penney or it's one of its buddies, none of them were actually alive at the time of the writing of this book. Not their kids, nothing. Meaning that the characters in the book were not alive at the time the book is writing. And the people that wrote the book had no evidence that that's what they said. Because nothing, no one saw him, no one knew anything. So just a bunch of people just decide to write a book. That's a problem. For anyone that actually wants the truth, that's a serious problem. There's no, there's no evidence, there's no proof, there's no witnesses, there's nothing. If I brought this case to court, they throw me out of the court. Like, come on, come back when you're serious. You're trying to prove something, but you have no witnesses, no eyewitnesses. And any eyewitness that you have already died 200 years before you even knew that it existed, Bechal. It's a problem with this. See, it shows in the Torah, there's no gap. All the way from Moshe Rabbeinu, we know, actually, as a matter of fact, all the way from Adam Arishon. Adam gave it to uh, several people, all the way from Adam, 10 generations. There's a Mishnah, we'll go over Bezat Hashem and Perkei Avot. says the list, the 10 generations until Avraham Avinu. You see exactly who the people are, how the Torah was transmitted from, from each person, each generation. Who got it? And so here it's starting already with the Mishnah telling you, listen, this is not some Shimon that we just want to call him Tzaddik because we want to give him a compliment. This is the same Shimon that was the last one, last member of Anshek Neset that we finished the first Mishnah telling you of how great they were. Where when they read the Torah, it's very different than when we read the Torah. When we read the Torah, we read some words. Bezat Hashem, we know enough to look at commentary. From 900 years ago, from 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, all types of different commentary. And Bezat Hashem, we go into the Gemara a little bit, Midrashim a little bit, see a little more commentary, a little more 
understanding of why Hashem decided to use this verse versus that verse, this word versus that word, this mitzvah versus that mitzvah, we get to learn. We, you, you spend your whole life learning, you get to know something, Bezat Hashem. But if, if you look at the basic, if you speak the holy language, you look at a basic verse in the Torah, all you see is the basic verse. Anything else you want to find out about that verse, you have to look elsewhere. You have to look at commentary, you have to look at the Gemara, you have to look at the Zohar, you have to look at Midrashim, you have to look at Shuchan Aruch, you have to look at a bunch of other places. The student of the students of Ansheknes at Agdola was Rabbi Meir Balanes. Rabbi Meir Balanes was one of the students of Rabbi Akiva. In the Gemara, it says that when Rabbi Meir tells his son, my son, be careful when you write a Sefer Torah, because if you missed one letter, one Yud, one Yud, you could destroy the world. Destroy the whole world. If you write a Sefer Torah, you take a scroll, you go... Start writing itself to why you miss one letter, you could destroy the world. What's the pshat? What's the meaning of this? If you write a sefer Torah, obviously, if you miss one letter, it's not going to destroy the world physically. What is the meaning here? He's saying, when you write a sefer Torah, you have to copy it. The halachai is you have to copy it. You have to copy it from another book. You can't just do it from memory. Even if you know the whole Torah by heart, you're not allowed to say write it as a scroll of Torah from memory. You have to copy it. That's the halacha. So make sure to be very, very careful because if you miss a yud, that yud, the small, tiny letter, any letter, but you're just giving the letter yud as an example because it's the smallest letter physically out of all the letters, that one letter can change the entire context of the sentence. Example, the word Yehudi. Yehudi means Jew, Right? If you take out the letter Yud, it's a tiny little dot. What's a Yud, Bechlal? Tiny, small. You take out the Yud from the beginning of Yehudi. What do you have? Hodi. Indian. When a Jew has, Yud is one of the major letters in Hashem's name. When a Jew has Hashem in his life, he's a Yehudi. He doesn't have Hashem in his life, he's a Hodi where there's the number one idol worship in the world, unfortunately, is there. Vimesh and Akshay, both my helpers, Akshay is one of the new members of the team, Baruch Hashem, the last few months, Tzaddik, taught himself Hebrew, also from India, they're telling me of this huge amount of idol worship that's going on in India right now. It's almost like a war zone over there. I don't know, it's, it's, it's a tikkun, tikkun, but... They live there, and they, uh, they show me all these pictures of all different types of idol worship that's being celebrated right now. Some group of people worship dogs, some cows, some rats, some money. Some guy, send me a picture. They worship a computer. I'm not joking. They worship, send me a picture. People praying to a computer. Other group of people praying to money. They put a stack of stacks of money, and they start praying to the money. Other people start praying to the dog. They dress up the dog, start praying to the dog. Other people pray to a uh, motorcycle. 
It'll hardly Davidson motorcycle. They start praying to the motorcycle. So us, like it's if 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 craziness and stupidity were stocks, we should buy all of our money together and borrow money just to buy all of it and, and on margin. Because the price would be infinity. It's Ramash craziness, but that's what's cows going on. Cows is most popular, but also there's uh, Islam is also there, by the way, in India as well. But nonetheless, the point is, is that when you, if you take out that yud, the little tiny letter, it changes the context of the world. So Rabbi Meir Baranes is telling us, make sure when you write a sefer Torah, be very careful, because one letter could cha- could destroy the world. It could change an alakha, it could change the context of a sentence. But then in a different Gemara, we have a problem. Why? It says when Rabbi Mei wrote a book, wrote the Sefer Torah, he wrote a Sefer Torah, someone came and said, what are you doing? You're writing Sefer Torah. Where, is, where are you copying it from? He wasn't copying it from anything. He was writing it from memory. That's what they say initially. Because why are you going against your own halakha? Right? Ma'ala says, no, no, no. Abimeir is different. Abimeir is different. He's not writing it from memory. He sees the Torah. So what does Chazal explain? He sees the Torah. It's not like us. We see, you open a chumash, you see black letters on white background representing a nice symbolism for how the Torah was originally written. Black fire on white fire. The student of the students of Anshek Nesedagdola, one of them being Rabbi Mebaranes, he didn't have him, he didn't memorize the Torah like we some people could learn the Torah for a while. You can memorize parts of it, all of it by heart. He didn't memorize it. He would see it. Meaning at all times he would see the Torah everywhere. You can't see, you go there, you see nothing. It's air. But he sees it. Does it actually exist? Anywhere? If he sees it, it has to exist. Was he the one whose wife knew more Torah than him? She didn't know more Torah than him, but she uh, she ochicha uto. She uh, rebuked him a couple of times in one. She used to like word of feeling. She would like. Yeah, Buya. Buya was her name. She didn't know more Torah than him, but she uh, she. uh, um, She was very big. She was very big, and she. Outdid him in a couple of arguments, but unfortunately, on the last arguments, on the last argument they had, he won, and she ended up killing herself. Oh. Okay. How come I never heard of it before? Because it's a big Torah. You don't know the whole Torah yet. Almost. You don't know almost half the Torah. You know they used to ask Avadia. Avadia has a had a zechet uh, tzaddik had a photographic memory, and uh, many of the books, the holy old books that we have today, he got from Egypt, but they were never released for the public. They're all in the museum, and Egyptians were refused to uh, allow the uh, public to take them out, Jews to take them out. So he would go every night, every day, he would go to the museum, he'd open the books, he'd memorize half the book, he'd go home, write the whole book. So he'd write half the book, he'd come back the next day, he'd read the other half of the book, he'd memorize it, go home, write the rest of the book. So many books that we have, really, really old books, are actually purely from his uh, memory, his extraordinary memory. So there's a joke, they say, Kvodav, uh, we heard that you know the whole Torah by heart. He goes, no, come on, don't be, uh, don't exaggerate. And I only know half, he says. Oh, really, you know half? Which half? He goes, which one do you want? 
So how can his wife kill him? Kill herself if she knew so much? Shame. Shame. Uh, it doesn't have much to do with Ashiel, but I'll tell you the story. So she was a big chachama, very, very smart, a lot of knowledge, but she didn't want to fulfill her position in the uh, world. She wanted to be like one of the tzaddikim, one of the sages, go to yeshiva, learn, so on. She laid tefillin, like you said, and uh, she knew a lot more than a lot of other people. There's a lot of interesting stories about her. But one of the times there was an uh, argument among the sages that the uh, mind of a woman, not the mind, the, uh, yeah, I guess the mind of a woman is dati uh, shakala, meaning that the, um, it's easy to, easier to convince a woman. Her mind is weaker than a man's. And she uh, said, this is a wrong halacha. Because what do you mean, no halacha? It's from Moshe Val Sinai. Hashem created women this way. It's easier to convince women than it is to convince men with certain things. She refused. No, oh, no, you're all wrong. She goes, what do you mean wrong? This is halacha. This is not uh, we just decided because this is what it says. She goes, that's wrong. So for the Kvod Torah, Rabbi Meir, husband, said, uh, I'll prove it to you. But you're not going to like it. He goes, prove you're never going to prove it to me. So it was a challenge. So what he did is he sent one of his students to entice her to sleep with him. And, you know, she became friendly with this student. Obviously, she didn't know he was going to be a student. She became friendly with the student. They became friendly and friendly. And a few times they, uh, they uh, talked and so on. Eventually, she agreed to meet with this guy and uh, be intimate with him. And right when they, uh, they went to some hotel, and uh, right uh, as she was ready and so on, you know, he obviously told her who he was. And then... Rabbi Meir came in and showed us, see, for Kvoda Torah I did this, but uh, you see that it is easier to convince a woman. Da'ati shakala, I proved the halakha. It wasn't to embarrass her. It was to prove, it was for the Kvoda Torah. Why for the Kvoda Torah? Because some people are going to listen to this story like, what a crazy husband this is. That's a tzaddik. Why is he testing his wife with such a crazy test? The reason why is because when she went against the sages, he couldn't let it be. It wasn't like going against the local rabbi. Hey, listen, Mr. Local Shabtai Tzvi over here. I, uh, you know, I don't agree with your opinion. You're a little, uh, you know, telling people it's okay to drive to shul because eventually you're going to help them do tshuva. I don't agree with that. It's not that. This is going against the sages. This is going against Alakha, this is going against the Torah, which means that for the Torah, you're not allowed, for your own kavod, you could throw it in the garbage. Your own kavod is worthless. There's no kavod, you shouldn't have any kavod. Torah, you're not allowed to, uh, it's, you cannot dishonor the Torah, you cannot allow the Torah to be dishonored. Your honor, let it, let, the more you're, more people dishonor you, the better. The better. Some people, some of the sages would actually look for other people to embarrass them. 
But for the Torah, no such thing. You cannot, you can never ever uh, let the Torah be disrespected. So when she went against the sages and went against the halacha, went against the Torah, Rabbi Meir said, we must defend it. We must defend it vigorously because if we don't do it, people are going to think that just because she's my wife, she's the wife of the Gdol Adol, she could do whatever she wants. And if she could do whatever she wants, then the next woman is going to say, well, she could do whatever she wants. And the next guy is going to do whatever he wants. Next thing you know, there's no Torah. Hashem Echem. So she's like everybody else. So he showed her that she's wrong. But because she was shown that she's wrong in this way, she couldn't take the embarrassment and she killed herself. She killed herself. So that's the story. Now, as far as as far as the Baruch um, Hashem, Hashem has given me Siat uh, to remember all these stories. You're asking me questions. You hold me, keep me on my toes. So now, Hashem is telling us here that Shimon Tzadik is not some Shimon. This is this is exactly this is one of the people that was. The rabbi of the rabbis of Rabbi Baranes that was able to see the Torah at all times. Like you see a movie, like you see each other, he sees the Torah. He doesn't need a book. He sees it. Everywhere he goes, he sees it. Not like he imagines it, not that he remembers it. He sees it. When you see something, it's different than when you remember it. If I tell you, listen, can you uh, spell the word, uh, I don't know, uh, Moses? From front to back and then from back to front, it'll take you a little bit of time to S O E. You know, it'll take you a little time to to do it. You can do it. It's only a five-letter word, but you can do it. But it'll take you it'll take you a little bit to do it. But if you see the word, it's two seconds. You just say that's it. That's it. Two seconds, because you see it. So for Rabbi Meir this, seeing the Torah at all times, for him writing the Torah. It's the same thing as somebody else looking at, a, at, the, at another scroll. And he was generations after Shimon HaTzadik. So imagine who Shimon HaTzadik was. The Gemara Masechet Yomah, page 39, says of Shimon HaTzadik was so righteous, so extraordinary. So many, many miracles happened during his time. And they name different types of miracles, how every Yom Kippur, Hashem would uh, forgive all of Am Yisrael and give them different signs. The uh, scarlet ribbon, scarlet is red, uh, that was tied to the horns of the, uh, the he-goat that they would throw off the mountain, would uh, miraculously turn white to show that Hashem is forgiving them, forgiving their sins. Uh, the lamp of the menorah uh, called the Nera uh, Maravi, the western lamp, would burn for 24 hours instead of only 12 hours. So, many, many miracles. And one of the major miracles, it says in Gemara Masechet Yuma, page 79, is an extraordinary story, historical story. Between him and Alexander the Great. After Nebuchadnezzar, the Rasha, 
destroyed the Bet HaMikdash, one of the prophecies we learned that Hashem wrote in the book of Daniel is that He showed Nebuchadnezzar not only the end of times, but He showed him every single kingdom that would rise after Him. And Daniel, the prophet Daniel, explained the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, no one will ever control the world like you. Hashem gave you this gift in this world that you'll have complete control over the world. No one will control the world as much as you until the Mashiach. But someone that came close was the one that right after him. Who? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, until this day, people that are into war and, uh, you know, great uh, generals and uh, commanders of armies study his battle plans to this great, to this, to this day. So Alexander the Great had extraordinary control over the uh, world. And one day somebody comes to him and he says, listen, there's this nation that's different. These Jewish people, you should, uh, they're going against you. They're going against you. They don't follow what you say. Alexander is already in war. He's already beating everybody else. They go, okay, let's go. Let's pull a stop in Jerusalem. So he brings his thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of people, everybody to this little Jerusalem. And he's going there. He's on the way there. And they come to Shimon HaTzadik and they tell him, listen, we hear that uh, Alexander Mogdon, that's how you say it in Hebrew, Alexander the Great is coming here with his whole army. Shimon HaTzadik, so, if he's coming, let's go meet him. If he's coming, let's go to war, let's go, no, let's cry, let's rip our clothes. No, why? What did we learn last week from Anshek Neset HaGdola? Anshek Neset HaGdola, why were they called the men of the Great Assembly? Why the men of Great Assembly? Because the Gemara Masechet Yomah, page 69, says that they were called great, not because they were big people, not because of the knowledge they had. They were called great because they were able to see good in the worst of times. They were able to see Hashem's greatness despite Choban Bet HaMikdash, despite the Holocaust that was happening. Meaning, they got to the ultimate level of emunah. All the emunah that people teach today, source, and Sheikh Nesetakdola. So, Shimon HaTzadik was with the last of them, complete emunah. He says, okay, Alexander Mugdon is coming, Alexander the Great's coming, let's go meet him. And he goes and he, he's on one side of the mountain, and then Alexander's on the other side of the mountain. It's night. They both rest. Both armies rest. And then on the next morning, they meet at the bottom, at the valley. And as soon as Alexander sees Shimon, who's wearing his gown, his, ca- his crown like a king, he stops everyone. And Alexander gets off the horse 
to everybody's amazement, he walks over to Shimon HaTzadik and he bows to him. Now everybody's losing their mind. The king of the world, the guy that controls the whole world, is bowing to this Jew. If you like his uh, crown so much, just take it. What do you... So Alexander says to everyone this exact words. Dmut dukyono shel ze menatzachat lifnei bebet milchamti. He says, when I go to sleep at night, every night, I have the same dream every night. And every night, I see in this dream, this amazing city, and this crown, and a voice is telling me, because of this, you're winning all of the wars. And this is on his crown. So because of him, I'm winning all of the wars. So Shimon HaTzadik befriended him and said, listen, and he saw you. So Alexander said, you know what? I'm here. I heard you guys have a place for your God. You know, let me put my statue in there. <laughs> he doesn't know we're not idol worship. So, but Shimon Sadiq was smart. He says, listen, if he tells this guy, listen, you don't have to put your statue inside our Bet HaMikdash, the guy's going to kill him and destroy the Bet HaMikdash. Who knows what he's going to do? So what does he say? Listen, statue eh, doesn't last. Doesn't last. Let's do something better. You have plenty of statues everywhere. Let's do something better. Want to make a decree that every single boy that will be born this year and all of the nation of Israel will be called Alexander. After you. So you're going to have a whole lineage of people named after you. What a kavod. Instead of one statue, you're going to have millions of people named after you. And that's how we got Alexander inside Judaism. That's how you have... About 2,000 years ago. A little over 2,000 years ago. So Shimon HaTzedek was an extraordinary person. And it says, Hu Aya Omer. Hu Aya Omer, Baba Metziah, page 107, explains that when it says, Hu Aya Omer, it really means, Hu Aya. It doesn't say, like, he was accustomed to say, but really, it was, he used to do this. From here we learn that Shimon... Embody the lesson that he wished to preach. Meaning that anyone that's mentioned in this Mishnah is giving you a lesson. He's not telling you, listen, this is the stuff you should do. You should be kind. You should be this. You should be that. No, no. This is what they used to do. And you, they're telling you this because this is what's working for me. This is what you should do. They're leading by example. Anyone that's ever going to have a chance to be a leader... Whether it's a leader of a keilah, leader of a company, leader of a division, leader of a team, leader of anything. If you want to motivate people, rule number one is lead by example. If you want people, your employees to show up on time, you have to be there too. You can't show up at 9.30 in the morning and expect everyone to show up at 8. 
I know you're paying them. I know that you can fire them. I know you can do whatever you want. But if you want people to be excited to show up earlier, you have to be there early also. I remember from my mistake, from my, my business, I used to come in really, really early and leave really, really late. Come in, I don't know, 6.30 in the morning and leave at 1 o'clock in the morning. But eventually, I started coming in a little later. I'd still stay late at work, but I'd come in a little later. And I started noticing that other people started coming in later also. Even though I was the boss, they figured out the boss is not home. So how's he going to know if I'm not home? You understand? So you want the first rule of leadership is you have to lead by example. You must lead by example. You want to teach people to lie. You want to teach people midot. You want to teach them to not waste seed. You want to teach them to keep Shabbat. You want to teach your kids to love Judaism. You want to teach your kids to learn Torah? You have to do it. We had a shiur in Arizona about uh, parenting. And I told people, you know, a lot of people, Baruch Hashem, you know, contact me for different reasons, as I mentioned before. But one of the main issues that people have is issues with children. Kids are off the derech. A lot of kids are off the derech, unfortunately. Now, it's not the case always... But many of the times the kids are off the derech, it's the parents' fault. Not that the parents say, hey, listen, buddy, Shiva sucks. Don't go there anymore. They're not doing that. They're paying for the Shiva $500 a month, $1,000 a month, go, Tadi, go, go, go. They're not saying don't go. But the problem is, the kid goes to Yeshiva. He has his little tzitzit. He has his little kippah. He goes with his little chumash. He's excited to go to school. Sees his Rebbe, wearing black and white. Everybody's there. He's learning. Kumash, Gemara, whatever. He comes home. Abba, no kippa. Abba, no tzitzit. Abba, shorts and a t-shirt. Ima, half naked. TV is on on Shabbat sometimes. Because the game's on. Because for Shabbat, you don't want to miss the game. So in school, tzaddik. School, we're religious. Home, chiloni. Secular. So what's the kid going to do? He's going to be like his parents. The kid will never choose his teacher over his father. Will never choose his teacher over his parents. Because when he goes to school, he's looking at this teacher. He's like, yeah, this teacher this is a rabbi. It's his job. He gets paid to look like this. He gets paid to be black and white. He gets paid to say all the things that he's saying. But my dad and my mom, they're my idols. They're my role models. There's no way that they're wrong. It's just that this uniform that you go to school, the tzitzit and the kippah and everything else, that's for school. But real life must be how my parents are living. So if there is religious in school but secular at home, the kid will end up being worse than secular. He'll be a confused secular. Kid that doesn't know anything, just goes to public school, doesn't know why, why he's even in the world, Bechlal. He doesn't know there's a difference between him and a monkey. He doesn't know there's a difference between him and a non-Jew. He doesn't know there's a difference between him and anything else in the world. He thinks everyone's the same. Every you know it's kumbaya. Great. He's confused. But Hashem, we show him some knowledge. He can do tshuva. But a kid that grows up in a confused house, where he's religious in school, secular at home, it's the biggest torture in the world. Why? Because his whole schooling lifetime, he's convinced that the teachers are full of it. Why? Because there's no way that the teacher knows anything more than his Abba. There's no way. 
even though the teacher does. The teacher may know Torah, the teacher may be a big Talmud Chacham. But in the kid's mind, Abba and Ima are supermen. They're everything. He's never going to pick anyone over his parents in a normal relationship. He's never going to pick them over, over anybody. So that means that Abba and Ima are always right and everyone else is wrong unless they agree with Abba and Ima. So if Abba and Ima are secular, I'm going to be secular. If Abba and Ima are not wearing, you know, not wearing Jewish clothes, I'm not going to wear Jewish clothes. Which means that that kid's going to grow up thinking that the whole religion is complete nonsense. So he's going to end up becoming a hater of the religion. Much more difficult to help him do tshuva than someone who doesn't know anything. Some Russian uh, guy that uh, was not allowed to practice Judaism and didn't know whether there's a God or not. A guy that's born in a, that's raised in a confused household, very, very difficult to help him do tshuva. Possible, Baruch Hashem, we've done it, but much more work. 50 times more work. Can't compare the two. It's like comparing, I don't know, a human and a monkey. Worlds of difference. Even though it seems like it's, it should be easier because you know some Torah. The problem is the guy that doesn't know Torah, everything you give him is a chidush. It's nice, it's sweet. The other guy, you teach him Torah, he's like, nah, I know. He thinks he knows everything already. He thinks he knows everything. So, what are you going to teach him? What are you going to give him? He knows about Noah, he knows about Moshe Rabbeinu, he knows about everything. So, how are you going to make him do tshuva? You have to must, like, take time off of your life to, like, help these people. Because a lot of people are like this. So, well, number one reason of some people that are off the derech is because of their parents. Parents that want to live both lives. You want to live both lives? Then just know that your kids are going to have serious problems. Guaranteed. Not, no, 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 no questions asked. Your kids are going to have serious problems. They're going to have to do tshuva one day. And anyone that's gone through tshuva, I can tell you from experience, it's a nightmare. It's very difficult to do tshuva. Oh, Hashem, at the end, it's great. But to go through the process, it's very difficult. Everything you know is wrong. You think that Wall Street is right, you realize it's wrong. You think that your ethical behavior is right, you realize it's wrong, according to the Torah. You think that being with uh, you know, uh, Jews and non-Jews is, is right, it's wrong. You think that all of you, everything that you think, everything that you know is wrong. That's tshuva. Tshuva is realizing that your whole life is one big lie. No, not too different from a convert. You have to, and you have to change, obviously. If it's wrong, you have to change it. If you go in the wrong direction, you're not going to continue going in the wrong direction. You're going to go in the right direction, right? Listen, if I'm going from here to Aventura, I have to take, I don't know, I-95 or something? I don't know, I use navigation system. I don't know anything about directions. So this is a bad example for me. But anyway, let's say I need to go to Aventura. I have to take I-95 for, I don't know, an hour. All I know is distance and time. Navigation, address... I drive the little car, I go into my own little world, whenever my navigation system says you're here, I know I'm here. That's it, I don't look around, I don't know anything. But anyway, if, the, if I make the wrong turn, which I often do, it says you're rerouting. Why is it rerouting? Because I'm going the wrong direction. So I have to change. Navigation system, mercy from Hashem on people like me, because knows that for me, I would continue going in the wrong direction for another 50 minutes, because I have no idea where I'm going. So when you realize you're going in the wrong direction, you must change because it's wrong. Einstein got a lot of credit for saying that 
this statement, he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. He got a lot of credit for it, right? Einstein, Chacham, Problem is that the Gemara already said it 2,000 years ago. Gemara Masechet Chagiga, page 8. Either 6 or 8, I believe it's 8. Definitely in the first 10 pages of Masechet Chagiga. Says the same thing. Says the same thing. It says, Who is crazy? Who is insane? And it gives you, it says, someone that walks in the middle of the night by himself. Someone that goes to the Bet Kvarot, to the cemetery, sleeps there. And someone that rips his clothes. Every time you give him new clothes, you rip them. Like when somebody died. So Ma says, well, what if he just does one of them what if he just goes to the any one of them he's crazy he goes no 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 sometimes you can do any one of them and with a real reason for example somebody's walking uh, in the middle of the night because he's going to shiur Torah that he can only learn in the middle of the night or he's going to I don't know he's going to do it with a dude like Amos in the middle of the uh, forest in the middle of the night who knows Tzadik he has a purpose for it just because he's walking in the middle of the night doesn't mean he's crazy Or someone's going to the Bet Kavod, someone's going to the cemetery. Maybe he's doing it like Rob Galinsky. You guys remember the story from last week, Rob Galinsky? Did I tell you guys the story of Rob Galinsky's? Rob Galinsky, one of the giants of the generation, just died not too long ago, some years ago, uh, and uh, he was a big Kiruv rabbi. A lot of amazing stories about him. He... Says that uh, he came from the yeshiva of the Sabamin of Vardok. Sabamin of Vardok was one of the students of Rabbi Israel Misalant, the one who started the Musar movement, which was not the Musar started 200 years ago, it's just that before that we softened up on Musar. So, anyway, so Rav Galinsky says. His rabbi was one of Rabbi Slavi Salant's students, Asabamino Valdok. He's like, we were taught that if you want to get closer to Hashem, you must do Mesirut Nefesh. You must have self-sacrifice. You must do things that are out of the ordinary. So as a student, I knew that I need to do these things. So one day, I think to myself, I have to work on my Yirat Shemaim. I have to work on my Yirat Shemaim. You can't just... Live in this world without fear of Hashem. Shlomo Amelach says, Rashid Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is fear of Hashem. Meaning, if you have no fear of Hashem, you have no Chokhmah. You can't say that you have any wisdom whatsoever. The beginning, once you have fear of Hashem, now you call yourself, okay, you have a little bit of wisdom. Just the fear of Hashem is wisdom. Everything else is extra. But everything that you know without fear of Hashem is worthless. That's what Shlomo Amelach is saying here. So, Rav Kedinsky says, I have to work on my Yirat Shemaim. So as an Avrech, as a young student, say, how do I work on my Yirat Shemaim? It says in the Gemara, if the 
Satan comes to you, makes you makes you want to sin, say Kriyat Shema. If that doesn't work, learn Torah. Learn Torah. If that doesn't work, think about the day you're going to die. Okay, Kriyat Shema you do every day twice, Baruch Hashem. And then Kriyat Shema before the Mitah. Learn Torah, Baruch Hashem, learning Torah all day. But sometimes I don't feel like, maybe I don't have enough Yirat Shemaim. So how could I really think about the day I'm going to die? Let me go to the cemetery. But not only go to the cemetery, but go to the cemetery in the middle of the night and dip in the mikveh of where they wash the dead bodies. He says, just the wind, the wind, the sound of the wind in the cemetery at night, he says, almost gave me a heart attack. So scary. So I go to the cemetery in the middle of the night and I say, okay, I'm going to get to this mikveh where they wash dead bodies. I'm going to take off my clothes really, really fast. Jump in the mikveh, jump out, go. That's it. I'm done. At least I did it. This is to tell the story. So he goes, takes off his clothes really fast. Can't see. It's dark. It's not like today, a million dollar mikveh. Complete darkness. There's a hole in the ground. Takes off his clothes. Jumps in the complete fear. Jumps in the water and he feels like he's stepping on a body. He says, and at that moment, I lost consciousness. He passed out. But then as he passed out, he falls into the water and the water wakes him up. He gets up out of the water and the body comes out of the water. And who does he see? One of the other Avrechim from the Kolob. Also had the same idea. So then Rav Galinsky says, And then I knew that it's not only Yirat Shamaim that I have to work on. I also have to work on my Gava. Gava, us, we just, just for the idea of going to the cemetery, we're already thinking that we're tzaddikim. For having the idea, not for going to the cemetery. Having the idea to go to the cemetery, you think, oh, so you know what, maybe I should go to the cemetery on Tuesday or Wednesday. Just for having the idea, I'm like, what a tzaddik I am. I'm going to go to the cemetery. He went to the cemetery, and he did what he did, and he's saying, no, no, I don't have to only work on my Yirat Shemaim. I have to work on another Midah. What? On pride. What pride do you have? You're tzaddik. Oh, he says, why did I think that I was the only one that's going to have this genius idea of how to build Yirat Shemaim by going to the cemetery. Of course somebody else is going to have the same idea. Who do I think I am? You understand what the Midot is? You understand, you understand what somebody that's Sadiq really is? So here it says in Masichit, Baba Metzia, page 107b, Uaya Omer really means Uaya. He was accustomed to say really means he was meaning he was whatever he says on three things the world the world uh, on three things the world is based on meaning that when Hashem created the world Rashi says the world was brought to, into existence only in anticipation of the eventual fulfillment of the three foundational principles, meaning that Hashem only created this world for these three three things to happen. If these three things don't happen, there's no purpose for the world. First one, Torah. 
Second one, avodah, which means service of God, not avodah at the store, not working at a store or some business. Avodah meaning avodah Hashem, servicing of God. And the third one is gemilut chasadim, loving kindness. And we'll explain all three of them, Bezat Hashem. I don't think we're going to get to the second Mishnah. Today we'll just do this one. So, first, what does it mean, Torah? In Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 88a, Chazal says, Rav says, that if Am Yisrael would reject the Torah in Mount Sinai, Hashem would have returned the world to Tovavo, would have returned the world to where it was in last week's parasha, complete nothing. Destroy the world instantly. So when before Ami said got to Mount Sinai, all of the angels were petrified. What if they don't accept the Torah? What if they don't accept the Torah? He's going to destroy the world, which means he includes them also. So everyone was petrified. But then Rashi explains. that Hashem already had the Torah in mind from the first word of the Torah Bereshit if you guys remember I told you guys about a video 17 minute video that talks about the first verse of the Torah it's a Hebrew video first verse of the Torah has a lot of you know endless wisdom in it but this is actually a different Chidush Baruch Hashem that will add to what Rashi says that I had Baruch Hashem today and Rashi says Bishvil HaTorah Shenikret Reshit Ubishvil Yisrael Shenikru Reshit the world was created for the sake of Torah which is called Reshit first or primary and for the sake of the nation of Israel which is also called first or primary meaning that another name for the Torah is Rashid, beginning of wisdom. The, the, the first thing was the Torah, Rashid. And another name for Am Yisrael is Rashid. They're the Amanifchal, they're the chosen people. So Rashi says that, again, the Torah is named Rashid and the uh, Am Yisrael is called Rashid. But the first word in the Torah is Bereshit. Meaning there's a bet, there's a lot, another letter, which means in Rashid. So I thought something to, not, it's not, not a breakthrough Hidush or anything, but it's something that's really interesting, is that, so it means, so here it says, in the Torah or in Israel, be Rashid. So in essence you could say be Rashid or in the Torah. Because he says Rashid means Torah, and also means Israel. So in Israel, so in the Torah, you will find the blueprint of the world. Because Hashem, according to Chazal, Hashem looked into the Torah and then created the world. It wasn't the opposite. It wasn't that He created the world and then He created the Torah. The Torah was created 974 generations before he created the world with black fire on the white fire 
and he used the Torah as a blueprint for the creation. Meaning, he looked at the Torah and he says, okay, there is a mitzvah called Shabbat. So I will make seven days a week. There's a mitzvah of Brit Milah. So I will make a human body have the ability to have Brit Milah. There's a mitzvah of kosher. So I'll make animals that are kosher and animals that are not kosher. Meaning he looked at the Torah and the mitzvot and the Torah, and from that he used it as a blueprint to create the world, not the opposite. So, bereshit means bat Torah, inside the Torah. Inside the Torah is where this blueprint of the world is. And in addition to that, bereshit meaning in Israel. In Israel you will find this Torah. The only nation that actually follows the Torah is Israel. That was something that I thought was sweet. Hopefully I explained it good. Um, So first thing we have to understand is that when Hashem says the Torah, He's saying here something very, very important. He's saying that this Torah is the only purpose of this world. It's not that people are the purpose. It's not that the Gan Eden or Geinom is the purpose. It's not the end being the purpose or the beginning being the purpose. The whole purpose of the world is for the Torah. If the Torah is being practiced, followed, and learned, the purpose is being fulfilled. And the signature of the Torah, in order for the Torah to, for us to know that the Torah is the same Torah, Hashem signed one of the uh, signatures of the Torah or synonyms for the Torah is emet meaning truth Torah can never change this is one of the confusing confusing things that people have when it comes to other religions and they think that it's the same with Judaism where if in their religions if they don't understand something they say oh you just have faith just believe You don't understand. It's okay. You don't believe. It doesn't make sense though. Yeah, just believe. It's okay. What do you mean it's okay? It's not not okay for this. This is contradicting this. Here you're saying he's black. Here you're saying he's white. It can't be both. Here you're saying that the Me'at HaMachpelah is in one location. Here you're saying it's a different location. Here you're saying that Yaakov came to Egypt with 70 people. Here you're saying 75. There's contradictions. It can't be both. Can't be both right. In their religion, like, nah, just have faith, just have faith. In our religion, there's no such thing. There's a stamp called emet. There's a single truth. And even in a time that there's machloket, somebody that knows a little bit of Torah, they say, wait a minute, but there's plenty of Gemara where the sages disagree. There's a machloket. One guy says this, one guy says this. So how could, how could, and they don't come up with an opinion. In the Gemara, Bavli, uh, it's, there's, plen- there's plenty of places where at the end of the Gemara, when they come up with the Alakha, they say, Teko, meaning they're both okay. There's no, we don't know which one is more right than the other. But they're different opinions. Meaning, they're both right. Even when it's a different opinion, they're both right. So there are places where there's multiple answers. But there's no such thing as there is no answer. So the Torah has to stay the pure Torah that it always was. And in order for it to stay pure, in order for it to stay emet, we have to know where it came from, which is what we learned in last week's Shul. It came from Mount Sinai, 
and so on, all the way to Shimon HaTzadik. So it's very, very important for us to know where it came from. So the stamp of Emet, the stamp of truth, is very, very important. That's why in today's generation, where people have a very easy time just changing rules and modernizing them, you know, modesty is no longer valid because no one's modest anymore. So why do I need to be modest? Shabbat is a different type of Shabbat. People drive to shul with no problem, no problem whatsoever. They drive to shul with the kippah and the tzitzit, filin, everything. They have, there's some people that drive to nets on Shabbat. They go pray extra early in the morning because it's supposed to be a bigger mitzvah. They're extra stringent on themselves not to pray with the rest of the world at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning. They go pray at 5. 5 in the morning. But instead of thinking for themselves, listen, Shabbat is one of the Ten Commandments. Going to the synagogue is not a Ten Commandments. You're not obligated to go to synagogue. It's good to go to synagogue. It's a mitzvah to go to synagogue, but it's not bigger than Shabbat. But they don't think about this. So what do they do? Like, no, no, no. Moses didn't drive on Shabbat because he didn't have a car. So I drive on Shabbat because it's the Knesset is 15 miles from my house. How am I going to get to the Knesset? You want me not go to the Knesset? Yeah, don't go to the Knesset or move. You cannot drive on Shabbat under any condition. There's only one condition you're allowed to drive on Shabbat. One condition. If someone's dying, if you are dying or someone else is dying and you're trying to save their life, it's pikuach nefesh, you're allowed to drive on Shabbat. It's a mitzvah to drive on Shabbat. Mitzvah to drive the ambulance on Shabbat. But, it does not mean that Shabbat is over. It just means that Shabbat is being put on hold until there's no more life risk. Meaning, if you're, let's say, for example, chas v'shalom, but if it happens, so you know the alakha lemaaseh, the practical alakha, put it in practice. If chas v'shalom, someone is in life danger, and you have to take him to the hospital. Then you drive to the hospital. As soon as you arrive at the hospital, the doctors come out to take the patient out. As soon as the doctors have a hold of this patient, you are back on Shabbat that moment. Meaning, you can't turn off the car. You can't go park it. You can't go home. Over. Can't do nothing. You have to stay at the hospital until Shabbat's over. No Uber, you can't drive. Maybe it's better get the Uber and stay go drive yourself. Why is it better? You're still violating Shabbat. Yeah, no, it's less. Why is it less? Why? You, you call a phone, it's violating Shabbat, right? Uber doesn't come by itself. And you're going to click on it 15 times before the Uber comes. So you, every time you're violating Shabbat. On top of that, you go in a car. Where, you know, you're violating Shabbat. What if the driver is Jewish? You're making him sin also. You have plenty of, plenty of uh, violating of Shabbat. And then on top of that, it's Chilul Hashem. Because everybody thinks, oh wait, look. He's driving Uber on Shabbat. The guy with the black hat and the beard. Chilul Hashem now. What Uber? No, you stay exactly where you are. You go, you stay, at the, you stay at the hospital. You have to keep Shabbat at the hospital. You cannot leave. What happens to the car? Tell them, just leave the, leave the uh, keys over there and tell them, listen, I can't park it. Give them somewhat of a hint that you can't drive it and eventually they'll get the hint and somebody else is going to park it for you because you can't leave it where it is. So that's, you have to understand, Shabbat, it's not that Life is more important than Shabbat. Shabbat is more important than life. 
but you're allowed to break Shabbat to save a life. Why? Because if you break Shabbat to save a life, that life will be able to keep many more Shabbatot. Okay. Allowed to break Shabbat to save a guy. Doctor that is a uh, gets a call to save a life, whether it's a guy or it's a, or it's a Jew, must go and save a life. These times when halachas, all times we don't do that. Or we still what? Halachas so, say somebody is going. This time we're saving it for avoiding anti-Semitism. No, no, it's not like that. You, if you, if you, if you are a doctor. And they call you and they say, listen, you have to go, you know, you're on your heart surgeon or something like that. You have a patient that is a uh, non-Jew and you have to save him. You have to go save him. Because if you don't save him, then not only, it's not about creating anti-Semitism only. It's that you're going to create major problems for the Jews. But it's okay, so you guys don't save our life on Shabbat. So we're not going to save your life on Shabbat. Because there's plenty of uh, doctors that are not uh, Jewish also. You know, look at the Jews like, oh no. We don't work for you on Shabbat. Die. So, they're also Hashem's creations. There's no, you have to save their life also. There's no questions asked. Oh, it creates Chilul Hashem also. So, you have to, you have to know when to use it. Point being is, if you already have that job of being a doctor, you have to know all the halachot. There's plenty of times where doctors make mistakes. I have two people that, um, that I know that are doctors. One guy is a dentist. And one guy is a different type of doctor I don't know yet. Uh, and uh, both of them I know have uh, violated Shabbat because they don't know this halacha clearly. One guy thinks that just because he's a dentist, he's allowed to answer phone calls from his patients. Not allowed to answer your phone calls from your patients. You're not saving their life as a dentist, my friend. If someone has a toothache to that extent that it's causing them a life risk, they should call 911, not their dentist. Okay, so dentist, not allowed to answer phone calls. Unless you're like some type of major oral surgeon where uh, your surgeries are a, uh, you know, a, uh, there is a Gemara that says that certain types of toothaches are a life danger, but it's not just uh, as, uh, you know, as uh, gums are bleeding or something. It's something serious. So dentists cannot default uh, to pick up the phone or do anything on Shabbat. And then other doctors... Uh, that, let's say, if it's a heart surgeon, brain surgeon, or any other surgeon that goes and saves a life, again, like I said, as soon as there's no longer life danger, Shabbat is back on, meaning he can't come back home unless he walks. He can't drive home. Oh, listen, I finished. They called me at 9 o'clock in the morning. I go, I saved the guy's life. It's 10.30. I still have the rest of Shabbat. Let me go home, have Shabbat with my family, have Kiddush. No, you can't come home unless you walk. You can't go back in the car and says, okay, I finished my job. Okay, you finished your job, but that means Shabbat is back on. You can't justify violating Shabbat at that point. Just to go, there's no reason uh, for you to violate Shabbat, you know, because you're not obligated to have um, Kiddush with your family. You're not obligated to go to shul. You're not obligated to have a big soda. You're obligated to keep Shabbat. So that's the thing that people don't understand when they don't know the specific halachot. They start creating new rules. And one of the major foundations of the Torah is that there is emet. There is a single truth. There's a single truth. You can't just create laws because it's not convenient for you anymore. Or because you think that you know, it's not relevant anymore because we're in a different 
stage, unless there's poskim of current generations that are taking it on themselves to say there's something right there that's no longer valid, you can't do it yourself. And no posek in the current generation could ever say that a previous posek is wrong. That's also one of the rules of the Torah. So unless it's not possible to do a mitzvah, like kobanot, you can't do kobanot anymore. You can't do sacrifices anymore. So it's not that it's not relevant. You can't do it. If we have Bet HaMikdash, we have Hashem tomorrow, they built Bet HaMikdash, Hashem brings it from Shamaim, already set. He doesn't have to hire any construction companies. It's already set. It comes from Shamaim. First day, you have to bring all the koanim and have to start doing kobanot, which, by the way, is something really cool. Anyone that uh, doesn't know, there's actually a um, school for koanim. They're teaching them how to work in the Bet HaMikdash. Ken, there's a school in Israel teaching the koanim uh, how to uh, do the service in the uh, in Bet HaMikdash. And um, what is it called? It's called the Temple, in- no, uh, something institute. Um, I think it's called Temple Institute, something like that. It's uh, really, really amazing. Uh, and they're actually try- they're looking for anyone that's really a Kohen to come and learn. Because as soon as the Bet Mikdash is built, they have to go to work. They have to go to work. So, first thing is, Al Torah, meaning that know that the Torah stands on one thing, truth. If there's no truth, there's no Torah. Next thing is Avodah, the service of God. Now, as we just heard, there's no way of us doing one of the main things that they're referring to in regards to service of God is Korbanot, doing the sacrifice. But we can't do sacrifice anymore. But as we learn uh, from uh, the prophet Oshea, is that once the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, our prayers replaced our korbanot, our sacrifices. So we no longer have to do sacrifices. That some people, especially when they're not Jewish, like Christians, for example, see this as a problem. See this, say, see, see this, this rule in your Torah, you can't do sacrifices anymore, so that means that all of your rules are not valid. If your rules are not valid, if one of them is not valid, then all of them are not valid. They just decide by default. So that means that our JC guy is right that he said that uh, you don't have to follow anything. All you got to do is just believe in him and you do whatever you want. You could be Adolf Hitler, kill 25, 30 million people, believe in JC, Did you're good. Did you have to believe in him or they made it up? They made it up. They say he said it. It's, it's, all, it's all nonsense. Either way, he say he actually, he is quoted in his book, I think it's the book of Matthew, chapter 17, I think he says that a... Uh, I didn't come here to uh, go against the Torah. I came here to fulfill it. Anyone, another place that says anyone that erases even a single yud from the Torah is cursed from uh, is cursed from heaven forever. So he said certain things that are for the Torah that he came to fulfill it. The problem is that he's quoted elsewhere as saying that he's bigger than the Torah. He's bigger than Shabbat. When they questioned him and rebuked him, saying, "How could you let your?" Students uh, violate Shabbat. And he says, I'm bigger than Shabbat. So, there's a lot of contradictions inside the book. The reality is the whole book is fake. So don't take anything what it says to, into memory or remember anything. I only remember it because I have debates with people. But don't waste 
a second of your time learning that stupid book. It's full of mistakes and I'll just taint your mind. I wish I didn't know all the information that I know. But the point being is that I need to know it for what I do. You have no reason to know it. Uh, it's good to know it if you have, if you have debates, if you have people in your life that you need to debate, and it's good to know it. I would recommend buying the uh, series by Rabbi Tovia Singer called Let's uh, Get Biblical. He's an extraordinary chacham, extraordinary Talmud chacham in Torah, and he actually knows the New Testament and the Quran better than anybody else in the world. He could quote you the verses by heart better than any priest, reverend, pastor, or anybody. He's amazing. But he, this is what he does. Point being is that the Christian is saying, listen, since you can't do Korbanot, that cancels out your entire oral Torah. That's what they have a problem with. They have a problem with our oral Torah. They say, listen, you can't do sacrifices. You see, there's a mistake. Wrong. One of the things that they don't know is even though they read our Tehillim, they read our Psalms, they consider Psalms as like one of the major parts of Christianity. They love Psalms. They love King David. So the problem is when you don't read it with Jewish commentary, you don't understand anything. Not just Psalms, anything in the Torah. Because it's the holy language. Unless you speak the holy language, you won't understand the Pshat. But unless you speak sage language, which means you have Ruach HaKodesh, you're not going to understand what he says. So in Psalm 51, 18... When King David is asking for forgiveness from Hashem, it says, For you do not desire sacrifice. As an ascent offering, you do not you do not want meaning that he's saying that um, your main King David is saying here Sacrifice was not exactly your main objective here. Repentance is your main objective. For us to do tshuva is your main objective. But since, for the sin that I, I made, it was an intentional sin. So sacrifice is not even valid for me anymore. I can't even use sacrifice. You can't have a sacrifice. If someone has, let's say, korban chatat, the, uh, the korban, the sacrifice for a sin. It's not for a sin that you did intentionally. If you drove on Shabbat intentionally, you can't bring a korban. It's only if you turn on the light by accident, by as a reflex. That's when you're allowed to bring a korban. You can't bring a korban for an intentional sin. You can only bring a korban for an unintentional sin. If you drove on Shabbat, they kill you. You death penalty. It's unintentional sin that you're allowed to bring a korban as part of repentance. So King David is saying here in Psalm 51, 18... You don't desire the sacrifice. The offering you don't want. Now that I cannot bring a sacrifice, King David says, Lord Hashem, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Meaning, the only way I can do tshuva is through my prayer. Meaning that the prayer is actually even higher than the korban bechlal. Your tefillah, you go to Bekneset, you pray at home, you pray at night, you go before you go to sleep, you do it bodedut. Your prayer is more valuable than a thousand korbanot. But if you pray with kavanah, if you pray while you're thinking about the, uh, I don't know, New York Cubs, what are they called? Chicago Cubs? Chicago Cubs are in uh, some baseball, some World Series right now, for the first time in 70 years. 
So, Baruch Hashem, I'm the only one that uh, knows this because I saw it in some headline. So, uh, point is, if you are thinking about the Cubs, or you're thinking about the uh, some basketball team, or you're thinking about the elections, or you're thinking about Hillary going to jail, or you're thinking about you know all of these things, then you have a problem. Your prayer is bupkis. It's worth nothing. The election got everyone crazy. Though. They just needed the election as an excuse to be crazy. They were already crazy before the election. Anyway, the point is that the point is that it's a someone needs to understand that your prayer, if it's a real prayer, it's bigger than kolbanot, bigger than kolbanot. Last but not least, val gemilut chasadim, and upon acts of loving kindness. So. Here, we learned there's a big difference between charity and chesed. They both sound the same to most people. They both sound like you're giving away something. But charity, you can only give to someone that's poor. Whereas chesed, you can give to anyone, poor or rich. Because chesed is not only money. Sometimes it's money. But more than anything, sometimes it's time, effort. But gemilut chasadim is overwhelming kindness, meaning above and beyond the standard. That's why someone's called a chasid. A real chasid is not some guy that wears a uh, black and white and has a funny looking beard. A chasid is someone that does above and beyond what's expected from Hashem. You have alacha, he does above alacha. You have standard, he's above. He does things above and beyond what's necessary and what's required of him he's a chassid so one of the uh, things that will help somebody understand what chesed is is the mitzvah ve'afta lerecha kamocha you shall love your fellow your fellow as yourself in the book of Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 it says, Now most people understand this is that uh, wrong. They understand that you should love your fellow, your fellow Jew, just like you love yourself. This would mean that no one is able to fulfill this mitzvah. It's a problem. Hashem would not put a mitzvah in our Torah that you can't fulfill. The Torah is not in the Shemaim. The, the, the Torah is not far away from you. You don't have to climb a mountain to go get the Torah. Meaning that everything that's in the Torah has to be natural for you to do. Easy for you to do. All it requires is desire. So if you tell me, listen, I have to love every fellow Jew just like I love myself. I already failed. That's it. I'm guaranteed Gainom. I could lose complete momentum and leave everything already. But that's not the mitzvah. That's not what the Torah says. If I'm required to love every Jew like I love myself, I can't succeed. Can't. What does it really say? And you loved for your fellow like you. Le means for. Meaning you cared enough about your fellow Jew that you want for him to have what you want for yourself. To love him like I love myself, that means that his life and my life are worth the same to me. It's completely false. 
if I have to save one of our life, I'm going to save my life. Especially if I don't know him. It doesn't matter to me that he's a Jew. Well, you're telling me that every time you see some Jew, unless he's Gdola Dola and everybody knows him, see a fellow Jew, they, both of you, you have an option. Somebody has to fall off a mountain. You say, no, 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 fellow Jew, let me jump off and give you room. Nobody's going to do that. But that's not the mitzvah. The mitzvah is that you want for him what you want for yourself. Meaning, you want to be successful? So when you hear that somebody else succeeded, you're like, ah, oh, Hashem. Good for him. You're not one of these people that eats their heart where he sees the neighbor got a new car. He's like, honey, can you believe it? They got a new car? Where did they get the money from? How did they have a car? And they also got a new house. And they're doing remodeling. Where are they getting the money from? All jealous, eating yourself up because somebody else got something good? Then they key the car. Oh, then they key the car. It's actually a good story. It's a good story. It's a funny story, but it's a good story. Show you what happens when somebody has serious jealousy and or anger. So there was one guy that... Uh, somebody would constantly block his parking but not block it completely they would like have a little bit of their the back of their car in his area where he was going to his driveway so he would put a sign and a sign everybody would ignore it so one day he comes home from work he's beat Tired, and what does he do? Not only is some someone is not even parked blocking his way, someone is in his driveway. In his driveway. Now he used to work for a uh, cement company, so he would come home. He'd have this huge truck. It's like, okay, you want to park in my parking spot? Fine. He turns the truck around, and he pours all of the cement on this car in his driveway. He says, that's going to teach him not to, not to park in my driveway. So he comes home, all happy with himself that there's cement on this brand new car. Opens the door. Surprise! Happy birthday, Abba! What do you think of the brand new car we got you? I got a few people back in New York. They were blocking the driveway. And like, there was a clear sign, 24-7, no parking. And I couldn't get out. So I had a few people told, is that kosher or... Did you try to reach them? I didn't know who they were, and I had to leave quickly. And there's a sign, 24 hours, not to park there. They told because it was 12 o'clock at night, I'm not going to leave. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a... Uh... If there were Jews, there were not Jews, when the time was. I can't tell you off the cuff, uh, you know, what happened there. I wasn't there. I don't know where you live. Lalshin is a problem. To go tell on somebody is a problem, especially if it's a Jew. Blocking your space. Blocking your space, fine. You still can't go to the cops. You have to go to Bedin first. That's law. The towing company is following the law. Oh, it's not. It's not as easy. It's not. It's not a clear cut. Yes and no. So but he's doing yep. the same for parking there too. That you can't leave. If he's doing it intentionally, if he's not doing it intentionally, if he's a Jew, if he's not a Jew, if the sign was clear, if the sign wasn't clear, 
One of them was my neighbor. He just thought that I wasn't going to leave after that time. Okay, so if it was a neighbor, that means that you knew who it was, which means you could have knocked on his door. I don't door. know who it was, but I used to see that card all the time. It was a building. Irrelevant. If you knew it was your neighbor, that means you knew who it was. That means you knew that you could knock on his door, which means that you called the cops to tow his car because you don't like him, not because you are in a hurry. You got your answer. So, Kamilut Chasadim. You love your fellow, meaning you love your fellow to have, you want your fellow to have just what you want for yourself. You see somebody getting a brand new car, be happy for them. Get somebody to have a brand new wife, be happy for them. You see somebody have brand new anything, good things, good fortune, Baruch Hashem. You should be happy for the world, not someone that's eating his heart just because somebody has what you don't have. As a matter of fact, someone that has jealousy, it's a form of kfirah in Hashem, by the way. It says that someone that dies with jealousy in his heart will not, be, will not come up in Tchiat HaMetim. Why? Because jealousy is a partial kfirah. It's, it's actually it's a little bit of heresy against Hashem. Why? Because if you're saying, if you're jealous of somebody then what you're really saying, if you think about it, you rationalize, you break it down, he has something that you don't have, and you're not okay with it. Right? That's what jealousy is. He has something that you don't have, and you're not okay with it. Which means, he has something, because Hashem gave it to him, and he didn't give it to you. Which means, that you believe that Hashem should have given it to you, and not him. Which means you believe Hashem made a mistake. That he's limited. You are now a kofel. You understand? Jealousy is a very, very bad thing. Aside from it's bad for your health, and it's bad for your mind, it's bad for your alamaba too. So, very, very important to know that having jealousy is something you have to work on really really hard to make sure you don't have it and by the way that chidush in regards to kamocha, I heard from one of G'dolei Israel, Rabbi Zamir Cohen genius rabbi anyone who doesn't know him should uh, listen to him Baruch Hashem, even though he speaks only Hebrew many of his lectures are now being translated with subtitles to English so you should definitely listen to his uh, shurim so to summarize all of it here we see something extraordinary we see that the lineage, the history is important from the first Mishnah, even from before the first Mishnah, where Hashem says, you know, there's a famous Mishnah we have in a Masechet Sanhedrin, Kol Yisrael which is not really part of the Perkei Avot, but it's something you say before you start each Mishnah. Each of Israel have a share of the world to come. And then it talks about who is this Israel. Well, then you see it's Moshe, got the Torah from Sinai. Then he gave it to Joshua. Joshua gave it to the elders. And we see that there's the heritage and the lineage and how it was transferred from generation to generation. And then that last generation of Anshek Nesed Agdullah, the, uh, the men of the great assembly, was given, uh, the last one was Shimon HaTzadik. And he told us that without the emet of the Torah, without the uh, hard work, Mesirut Nefesh, working for Hashem, and without... Loving kindness, true loving kindness, which is doing things that are above and beyond your calling, this world has no purpose. And this all connects with what we read in the beginning 
about Noah. This week's parasha, Hashem may, destroys the world, but promises Noah that I'm not going to destroy the world, that I'm going to keep my word. Even though I have a reason to destroy the world in the Tower of Babel, I'm not going to destroy the world because I gave you my world. Even though I have a reason to destroy the world, every single time you see a rainbow outside, that means that Hashem is saying, I want to destroy the world. But I can't because I'm keeping my word. I can't because I'm keeping my word. I'm not doing it because I'm keeping my word. So if I, who well, I don't have to answer to anybody, Hashem doesn't have anybody to answer to, He could destroy the world, we wouldn't even know. We're going to go to them with complaints. Hey, Hashem, you're not to destroy your own world. And tell him what to do with his stuff. It's his. It's his to destroy. It's his to build. It's his to do whatever he wants. Who are you, Bechlam? You're not even going to exist when he destroys it. What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the question here? He says, I'm not destroying the world because I, I'm keeping my word. So know that you, first of all, must keep your word. And one of the things that is the foundation of my entire Torah is the importance of keeping your word, is the importance of sticking to the truth, sticking to the emet, doing things that we've already agreed to do generations ago. Because if you don't do it, it's a big cost. It's a very, very big cost. Now when someone understands the foundation of Judaism, they understand that all of Am Yisrael is responsible for one another. Everyone's responsible for one another. So if we were all on a boat, and one of us decided, you know what, each one of us has our little suite on this cruise, uh, and I decide, you know what guys, I want a pool inside my room. So I'm going to make a hole in the bottom of my room. You're all going to knock on my door and say, hey, hey, crazy guy. No pool. You make a hole in the ship. Water's going to come in. He goes, if I tell you guys, listen, mind your own business. my room. It's my room. I'll do whatever I want in my room. He goes, no, no, you can't do whatever you want in your room. Because you make a hole in your room, the water's going to come in. It's going to sink all of us. The ship, we're all on the same ship. Ami says, all on the same ship. Whether you like each other, you don't like each other, it's irrelevant. He's Yemenite, he's Ashkenazi, he's Sephardi, he's this one, he's that one, he's a convert, he's not a convert, he's Tzaddik, he's a Rasha, it doesn't make a difference. All of us are on the same boat, my friends. Which is the last part of this Mishnah. If you're going to fulfill this Emet then you must fulfill the two parts. You must work for Hashem, you must work very hard, and you must do Gemilut Chasadim. And as we've learned in previous Shurim, the highest level of Gemilut Chasadim is doing Zikoy Rabim, doing Kiruv, getting people to do Tshuva. Giving somebody a ride to the hospital, Chazaku Baruch. Giving somebody a challah before Shabbat, Chazaku Baruch. You're not going to Ganeidot for that, my friend. Yeah, Chazaku Baruch, it's a mitzvah, good job, you get two thumbs up, I don't know, you're probably going to get you know, some reward at some point. But Gan Eden, you're not getting for giving somebody challah. 
When they're talking about Gemilut Chasadim in the Torah, they're not talking about just doing something nice. You gave the guy, you gave the homeless guy five dollars. It means go out of your way, do something above and beyond to get other people to do tshuva. Arrange shiurim, give CDs out, sponsor CDs, uh, give lectures yourself. Do something to get other people to do tshuva. Send them shiurim. If you don't have any money, you could send links. Send YouTube videos. You have to do something above and beyond. Why? Because this emet that we started the Mishnah with, it doesn't get to the end of the Mishnah without avodah. It doesn't get to gemilut chasadim. Gemilut chasadim. You don't just go from Torah, the emet of the Torah, to gemilut chasadim. In order to go from Torah to Gemilut Chasadim, there's an Avodah in the middle. Meaning you have to work for it. Gemilut Chasadim is not supposed to be easy. Hashem is showing us rainbows on a regular basis because He's telling you, listen, I want to destroy the world, but I'm not, so I have to keep my word. But give me a reason. Give me a reason to keep this world going. So, Baruch Hashem... We have another shiur tomorrow night in Miami. We're going to go over the other uh, Mishnah, uh, Antigonos Isocho, which we're going to talk about the opposite of what we talked about today. So anybody that wants to go to shiur, it's going to be a completely different shiur, completely different Mishnah, of what happens when things go wrong. Meaning when the emet has a little bit of stinky lie in it. And that's what happens in uh, tomorrow's Mishnah, tomorrow's Shi'ur. Last but not least, good news, Baruch Hashem, and then I'll let you guys get some rest, is Baruch Hashem, we have amazing news, CD number two just came out. So anybody, get yourself a copy. Baruch Hashem, we got our first shipment today, we're working on getting a lot more. CD number one was a big success, sent it all over the world. Uh, thousands and thousands of copies people call me and text me from all over the world how the CD changed their life personally I think CD number 2 is 50 times better than CD number 1 much much better a lot better lectures the personal story is much better the Shidushima much better you know you get better with time I think with, uh, with Torah especially uh, better Shidushim better insights uh, 30 hours of lectures on each one but either one, both of them have different things that could uh, help either one. Where uh, I'm also working on like a package to send both of them together and a nice packaging. Um, so sponsor CDs, give them out. They're only a dollar for thirty hours. People spend fifteen, twenty dollars on junk. Some I don't know, some R and B or some other uh, music. They spend twenty dollars for something that's going to help people go to Gehenom. One dollar can help them go to Ganeden, Lavdin. So you have to understand these CDs. They help people. Get them out. Get them in front of people. Try to get as many people as possible to uh, listen to this stuff. Because again, it's not me. It has nothing to do with me. It's just the Torah. Anyone else, any one of you repeats the same story, you're going to get the same results. Nothing changes. This is what the Torah of, of, of Hashem actually, when you fulfill it, this is what happens. And the last part is something I've been meaning to do for a while. These key roof packages that all of you have gotten at some point or another, and many people, Baruch Hashem, that are watching it, these, uh, a lot of people ask me, this uh, Chesed fund that we have online, we're trying to raise uh, three quarters of a million dollars, 
donations for different projects, one of them being the Kiruv packages, and another one is being for the CDs to send out at least 25,000 CDs a month. All of this requires money. Baruch Hashem, we're not at the stage of getting money from Hashem yet, uh, so we still need money. Uh, and all of it costs money. So right now we're sending a lot of, you know, one of the main things that we're doing is we send these Kiruv packages to people from all over the world. Literally from all over the world. I've sent it to India, I've sent it to uh, Sweden, Bulgaria, uh, I don't know, all over the United States, Australia, Mamash, all over the world. And these Kiruv packages are amazing. This, why do I call it Kiruv packages? Because it's the only package that I know of, at least, that is a complete package that can help somebody do tshuva. Like a complete tshuva to know from A to Z, how do I get started? Obviously, you're not going to, once you go through this material, you're going to need to get more stuff. But there's plenty of stuff here that you're not going to find any other organization that's doing. And I'll give you an example of what it is. So first and foremost, you see this book. This is a very famous book by Rabbi Zamir Cohen. It's called uh, two names. One of them is Science Comes of Age. And another one is um, uh, The Coming Revolution. They just changed the name. It's the same exact book. It's a book by Rabbi Zamir Cohen. As I said, he's one of G'dolei Israel. He's a giant chacham, big tzaddik. Uh, has a huge organization called Idabut. And uh, unfortunately, 95% of his work is in Hebrew only, but this is one of the books that he translated to English, which is most of my crowd, even though I do some lectures in Hebrew also, most of my crowd is English, English speakers. And here it's full of Torah proofs, scientific proofs, written by scientists that are not Jewish 99% of the time. But he shows you the source of these science proofs in the Torah. So whatever science discovered, whether it's the number of stars in the universe that was just recently dis- you know, discovered uh, less than 15 years ago in 2004, or it's that uh, plants talk, they have, they have feelings, or it's that uh, there's different things in water and so on. There's countless of proofs in it. He shows you that these scientists didn't discover anything. It's all written in the Torah. It's all written in the Torah. Oh, and just like I said in the Gemara uh, Masechet Chagiga, it talks about the uh, person that um, I didn't finish the chidush. The person that is crazy, person that's crazy, goes out at night, goes to the bed kavarot, or goes to uh, rips his clothes. If he does something for a good reason, then he's not crazy. But the Gemara says no. But what if he does it? There's just one of them. One of them. What if he just goes to the cemetery? But he does it three times. So the Gemara says, if he does one of them three times, then he's crazy. Why? Because if he, he's doing it three times and expecting a different result. He went to the cemetery three times and expecting a different result. Which is exactly what's, what Einstein said. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So this is already written almost 2,000 years ago. So this book, it's, what I just said is not a chidush in this book, it's a chidush that I read in Masachat HaGigah myself, I never seen it in the book. But nonetheless, Baruch Hashem, it's many, many more are in this book. So anyone that has doubts, which is many people in our generation, this book is great. I mean, people can buy it online, I don't know, it ranges from 30 to $70 online, but this is one part of the package. Another, then we have this other stuff over here. 
uh, we have these little cards. So, for example, this is like six things that someone can do. Six mitzvot that someone can do each day, which is thinking about Hashem. Six different ways of thinking about Hashem. As like a reminder, we have it in English and uh, Hebrew. Then we have different things that help somebody understand with the power of Amen. From the uh, this is from the uh, Chafetz Chaim Center. This is from uh, a different uh, organization, uh, also from I think Or Chaim. Yeah, I think it's also from Chafetz Chaim, but maybe somewhere else. Um, then we have CDs, plenty of CDs. When I when I first started giving out. Kiruv packages. Well, before I started giving lectures, I started with doing Kiruv without lectures. I used to just send these packages out, but when I first started, it was just this book and a couple of Rabbi Mizrahi CDs. Now, as you can see, the Kiruv packages are much more extensive, so we have about a dozen different CDs in here. There's another book. This is Holy Nation. It's a book about how to guard your brief, how to not waste seed. The lecture that we had for three and a half hours, this is a book about it. Uh, by the Breslev Center. Uh, it's CDs. My CD, there's Rabbi Mizrahi's Torah and Science. There's about a handful of CDs from Rabbi Mizrahi. There's a, uh, a um, Rabbi Alona is in here. There's also Rabbi Avi Weisenberg uh, about watching your eyes. Emunah, Science, Near-Death Experience, Tarat Mishpacha in three different languages. How to, you know, for women to keep Tarat Mishpacha, both men and women need to understand how important it is. Uh, Emunah, different, you know, so there's about a half a dozen different rabbis aside from myself and this book. And I think there's a few other things here. Uh, oh, also, Asher Yatzar, someone that's, you know, the prayer that you have in your, uh, outside the bathroom, or that we have over there, we have the small one and also the big poster that I gave many of you that goes in it. And then there's also a reminder as a uh, stop talking in shul. He uses this as a bookmark, and also Amen also as a bookmark, and a few other cool things that are in it, other CDs, and Baruch Hashem now we're going to have CD number two in there, and some other letters and different things, more blessings. Uh, point being is that the package has hundreds of hours of Torah in it that you can learn. Anyone that's seeking for the truth, whether it's from the Emunah side, the science side, the uh, rational side, whatever side you want, it's in here. And it's nice, it's sent in this nice little gift package because it is a gift. Because all of it is free. We don't charge any money for it. So, this has helped hundreds of people do tshuva. Why? Because it's a complete package. You want to learn? You're looking for the truth? This is all you need. Obviously, you're going to have to build on top of your collection. But the point is, you want to learn about what who God is? You have it in here. You want to learn scientific proofs? You have it in here. You want to learn emunah? You have it here. You want personal stories? You have it here. You want to learn how to watch your eyes? You have it here. You want to watch uh, watch your brain? All the foundational stuff to get you to start doing tshuva, you have it. Obviously, you want to be tzaddik, you do more. You start learning gemara, you start learning chumash, and so on. But the point is, you have hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of shurim in here. You have books, you have writings... You have all types of things, and all of it is free, and I also include my business card, because obviously my personal story is in it, and people are fascinated by this card. I just think it's a good bookmark. You can use it for that, or whatever. The phone number still works. All of it is free. Now, it doesn't. it's not free. It's free for them, but it's not free for us. It cost 
for domestic because it all depends on shipping. Shipping, unfortunately, is very expensive. We use UPS because UPS is reliable. Everyone else is not reliable. So we want this package to arrive. I don't care how much it costs. So it ranges anywhere from $95 to $200. Obviously, when I, the package I sent to Bulgaria cost me over $200. The package I sent to Sweden cost me even over $200. The package I sent to another guy in Florida, like those five kids that... Uh, came to the breast of Santa Shior that I all asked me for packages, each one of the packages cost about a hundred bucks, ninety-five dollars, something like that. Each one of them cost money. So we're sending right now an average of about fifteen a week, which is about sixty a month. We're trying to get up to two hundred fifty a month. Not sixty a month. Why? Because there's six million Jews in Israel, the six million Jews in America, and there's others all over the world, and they all need to know it. We have to get there. Doing it small, doing it one at a time, like I've been doing it for the last few years, okay, it's great. It helps a few people do tshuva. It's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. So that's the package that people ask me about. So when anyone that's asking about this package, this Kiruv package, that's the package. Anyone that needs help, wants the package, they can email me. I'll send it anywhere, Bezat Hashem, and uh, try to help them, at least if it's reasonable. If anyone can pay for it themselves, for their own package, that obviously would be great, but... Also, for anyone that's looking to sponsor, anyone that's looking to do Gmilut Chasadim like we, we learned about, this is a package. This is what it looks like. This is what it is. You want to actually have different ways of doing, of doing Gmilut Chasadim, you have several different ideas here. Number one, best idea of all, arrange a shiul. Arrange a lecture. Your house, your synagogue, your place, arrange a group of people to come and have a shiur. I don't charge for my lectures. I just need people to sponsor CDs. So I know that the Torah is going to stay there and it's not just one year. People sponsor CDs, I'm more than happy to come. They want to give me donations, Bezat Hashem. That's how we survive. That's idea number one. Idea number two. CDs. Sponsor as many CDs as possible so you can give them out. 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000 CDs. These things go fast. People are like, no, I don't want to get too many. I only want to get 100 they realize once they start giving them out, five minutes, you're done with 100. You go to the supermarket, you drop 25. You go to another store, another 25, 50. Two, three places, you're done with 100. I go through thousands every week. I just got 5,000, they'll be done by tomorrow. Thousands all over the place. People get them, people pick them up. You go to a mikveh, you drop off 50, they're gone by the end of the day. It's an interesting, it's not just a uh, nice cover, it's an interesting topic. People never saw religion and Wall Street on the same page. So Baruch Hashem, Hashem put us through health to help people do tshuva for a reason. So you get through, you give people these CDs, people listen to these CDs, they send me messages, they do tshuva, you bought yourself the next world. You give a thousand CDs, one person does tshuva, ashrecha. Ten people do tshuva, even better. Hundred people, a thousand people, you do it on a regular basis. This is what you would spend. This is a smart investment for someone who wants to give their ma'asel on a regular basis to give these CDs out. The best thing is, the ultimate mitzvah is to sponsor it and give it out. But if you're a very, very busy person, just sponsor them. I'll give them out for you. I send them out all over the world anyway. I could send them out for you. That's number two. Number three is to sponsor Kiruv packages. You have a few friends. You have two, three, four, five friends that you want them to have these Kiruv packages whether you want them to know that it's from you or not, yeah, tell me, yeah, this is, for the love, here's $500, here's five packages. 
You have five people that can get these packages. They do chuvah. They get these packages. It's nice. It's a nice way to... to, to it's a respect, respectable way. It's not like an Amazon package where it's like you have, uh, you know, it just looks like it just came out of the factory. You see, it's nice wrapping, everything. We put a lot of work into it. It looks like a present because it is a present. Or if you don't have friends, then we have plenty of people. The Hashem, every single day we send out packages. Every time sometimes you guys come, there's UPS packages in the front. That's what it is. Sometimes it's big boxes, small boxes. That's number two. Number three is... Send the lectures online to people. You're on Facebook already. You're on Twitter already. You're already there. You shouldn't be there. You should be learning Torah instead. But if you're already on internet, you're already on uh, Facebook, you're already on Twitter, you're already on, I don't know, My, MySpace, I don't know, whatever, whatever these websites are, take a link, copy, paste, send it to somebody. Put it on your page. Maybe somebody's going to watch it. Maybe not. It doesn't make a difference. Try. Spend five minutes a day doing Kiruv. You guys have heard many, many miracles that have happened to people that helped us do Kiruv. One guy, one miracle after another. I told you guys the, the, the stories. I told you the stories. Kiruv is an extraordinary thing. KPTA. It's exactly KPTA. It's unbelievable. People are going through miracles every day. Every day. I'm telling you, there's new miracles. I have one woman, a husband, they're going unfortunately through a uh, divorce. The husband wants to go through this big case, wants to do balagan, wants to do all these things. Baruch Hashem, she does kiruv, she does tzaddikah. She says the next day, after he said all these stupid things of how he wants to go to court and problems and this, the next day he calls, he says, I'm sorry, I want to I wanna give you whatever you want. I want to negotiate or just, I don't want to do everything I said. Kepitiye. Things change. And also the opposite happens too. I have three stories that are very scary. But this is necessary to tell people because of some people are stupid enough to go against Kiruv. To go against Kiruv. You want to do Kiruv, it's the best investment in the world. You don't want to do Kiruv, at least don't go against it. Some people, they don't like what they hear. They don't like the truth. They go against it. Like some rabbis that I know or some kofrim that I know. And they go against it. And it's very, very dangerous. So for anyone that's foolish enough to go against it or make a stupid comment about lectures and get other people not to do tshuva just know that it's also very dangerous it's not a threat for me at all this is in the Torah it's actually written in Pekei Avot Pekei Avot says anyone that goes uh, uh, anyone that does Kiruv is, uh, uh, gets a share of the world to come but anyone that goes against anyone that goes against the public they don't let them do tshuva. But what does it mean they don't do tshuva? It's not just they don't let them do tshuva. He goes through hell. So I'll give you an example. There's three different people that went against Kiruv in the last 14 months, 15 months. All true stories. I'm not going to go into details, names. None of that stuff matters. But I give you all three stories, all true, all for me. One. One guy went against Kiruv, got cancer two months later. Two months later, he, he was supposed to arrange something. He's the one that stopped it. Shem Achem got cancer two months later. Baruch Hashem, he feels better now, and hopefully he has refuah shlema and gets a, uh, does tshuva, but it's a uh, problem. He thinks maybe he has bad luck, but it's not a coincidence. Another guy, supposed to be a big rabbi, to a place he didn't want to come. Why? Because the last time the rabbi came, 
they don't, the Keilah donated too much money to him. Not that the rabbi put a gun to their head and said, listen, you have to donate. The Keilah chose to donate money to this rabbi's organization because it's a great organization. They decided to donate. But this guy decided that, no, no, I'd rather that their money go to the Keilah instead. So he didn't want this rabbi to come. I'm like, yeah, but the money's not going to come to the, to the Keilah. If they're not going to donate it to a rabbi, they're not going to donate it at all. No, no, I'd rather I'm not. Like, he'd rather no do, uh, donations than go to somewhere else. So he stopped a huge lecture from happening. Four months later, three months later, had a child born. The child didn't leave the hospital for six months. Almost died. So that was situation number two. Uh, what was the third one? That one was also a disaster. I forget what it is. The point is, you get one of the points. Best thing, do Kiruv. Worst thing, go against Kiruv. So, anyone that can contribute in any way, shape, or form, do what you can because, again, it's a. Uh, even if you don't like. Uh, not me, go with Rabbi Mizrahi. I don't care. It doesn't make a difference to me. Just do something. Because that's the point of this Mishnah. The Mishnah is Torah. Gets to Gemilut Chasadim with Avodah. And if Hashem is giving this world more and more time, despite the horror that we're seeing around us, this disastrous election that's happening, which amazes me how this is the best we have. On both sides. On both sides. I don't get into politics, I don't follow politics at all, but people talk about it nonstop. I don't really care. It's, it's, I've seen that a few times. People think Mashiach this. Who knows? Who knows? Who cares? Listen, the point of Paul, I'll tell you one thing about this politics stuff. First and foremost, and we'll finish with that and let you guys go home. First and foremost, whoever becomes a leader, Hashem takes away his free choice. So no one needs to be angry at Obama because Obama doesn't have free choice. Just like we have two proofs in the Torah, or three. One is Paro. Hashem took away his free choice. Two is Sichon. Sichon, Hashem took away his free choice. The literal verse in the Torah that Hashem took away his free choice before he went to battle with Am Yisrael. And three is Nebuchadnezzar. Also, Hashem took away his free choice at one point. So anyone that becomes a leader, Hashem takes away his free choice, whether it's Obama or it's Clinton or it's Bush or it's, I don't know, Osama, who cares who it is, Netanyahu, all of them. They're all puppets. They're all ways for Hashem to fulfill his will. So, elections, meaningless. But if you want to look at the basics of it, listen, what do you have here really? Obviously you see that there's politics are not run by logic. They're not run by logic, they're not run by the Torah. On one end, you have Trump, that, listen, he says things that are real, I appreciate his honesty, but he's a gaftan. He has more pride than you can count. He's an extraordinary amount of pride, which makes him, you know, unlikable for some people and very likable for others that like that stuff. The point is, it's 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 a bad midan. It's not a you know, it's a, it's a problem for someone that has gava. So you have one guy as a gaftan. You have one guy that has a lot of uh, pride. Thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Fine. Problem is that the other one's a criminal. You know, so the other one, the other one is a criminal. So, you have one guy that's a gaftan, the other one is a murderer. 
So, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, what, what, are, you, what are you gonna pick? You have hundreds of millions of dollars. Whatever it is, it doesn't make a difference. The point is, Hashem is going to put whoever He wants in position. Anyone that's getting crazy about who's gonna win, who's gonna, it doesn't make a difference. But I think you said once that there are people behind the president who run the show. It's not Ken, actually the president. Ken, Ken, it's in, in Ken. In, uh, this world, there's plenty of people that actually run the world that are much more powerful than the president. But in the real world, Hashem runs the show. Nothing happens unless Hashem signs off on it. A leaf, Gemara says, a leaf doesn't fall off of a tree unless Hashem okays it. A leaf. One leaf, one tiny leaf. A tree has millions of leaves. One leaf doesn't fall off the tree unless Hashem says, okay, you're allowed to fall off. You understand? So, what do you think is, uh, anybody can do anything unless Hashem signs off? What do you think? Hitler did it because against Hashem... Paro did it against Hashem. Netanyahu did it against Hashem. All of these people went against Hashem. What, it's, uh, Hashem couldn't stop them? No, Hashem allows them to do what they're doing. Anyone that wants to have salvation, salvation only comes from one place. It's called Hashem Barach, And the way to do it, the way to fulfill His will, is called the Torah. Any questions? Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen. Baruch.